Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. We're here today to talk about the DC Comics for the week of December 14th, 2021. Uh, quick reminder, 12 days of the Comic Source coming up real fast. If you missed us on social media, we're going to be doing the first 12 issues of Spawn. We're going to have our usual uh, creator interviews where they come on and talk about uh, what the year that was and, and what uh, stuff they have coming up and just talk about comics in general. So uh, we'll probably have some giveaways as well. So be sure you uh, you tune in, you're following us on social media for all that kind of good stuff. And I, I should also mention, so there is uh, a DC holiday special coming out this week, but we're not actually going to talk about it on this uh, episode because we're going to do a spotlight all on its own so we can cover uh, all the stories in there uh, in depth. So that's Tis the Season to be Freezing that has uh, Harley <laughs> Quinn on the cover. So look for a, a, a spotlight on that coming later this week, maybe early next week. Uh, but the other big news in DC is the solicits dropped, and we know what the, the next big event is that's uh, coming up in March. You want to let everybody know what it is, Rocky? Uh, yes, it's the uh, War for Earth 3. Amanda Waller, as we know, those of us uh, who have been uh, reading uh, the pages of uh, Teen Titans Academy, Suicide Squad in particular, and some hints at in The Flash, those three titles, uh, there is going to be, they're going to be, uh, Amanda Waller is going to be making her move to uh, solidify her power uh, by trying to take control over Earth 3. We we saw hints of that in Future State, and apparently it is now a big event. It will be starting, it will be taking place in February and ending at the end of March of 2022. So I'm I'm looking forward to it. I know a lot of people are complaining. We're also getting a Batman Shadow War coming out around the same time, but I'm I'm looking forward to it. I I kind of like I like an event that isn't always Batman, so I'm I'm looking forward to it. I I love Earth 3. I've been enjoying Suicide Squad Flash. Less so Teen Titans Academy, but between Flash and Suicide Squad and and your favorite character Jason Amanda Waller, I'm I'm looking forward to it. What about you? Yeah, well, here's the thing, you know, like Marvel's done this for a lot of years where they go from event to event to event, and, and oftentimes they're line-wide events. I mean, this is an event the same way Future State was an or, or uh, Fear State was an event, right? Like, that was just the Batman books, which is a whole hell of a lot more than what we have here, you know? Like like we said, Teen Titans Academy, Flash, Suicide Squad, it's only three books, um, yeah. so it's not like that big of a deal. If you want to ignore it, you can. Uh, it makes sense with what we saw in Future State more sense than a lot of the other continuity that's going on this week. <laughs> I just yeah. uh, scratch my head at. So yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll see. Uh, we'll see how it all plays out. Um, I did see a headline of an article in the last couple of days that said, basically fear state shows that future state was a gimmick, you know, because <laughs> magistrate is, is defeated and I'm scratching my head going. Yeah. I mean, we are, what did you think? Did you think that they were putting out all these series of, of you know, two issue uh, volumes that you, you thought it was going to matter in the end? Everything's a possible future, right? Like they're never going to nail down uh, any anything in continuity when it's a jump forward. Like just get used to that. So that that's not I think it was from like comicbook.com or something. It's like th this is not news <laughs> that it's uh, a gimmick. So. Yeah. Uh, anyways, let's go ahead and dive into the books for this week. We we uh, finally have a credits page for Batman the Imposter. We're on the final issue here. This is a Black Label book. Uh, it's written by Mattson Tomlin, who's also the writer that wrote the screenplay for the upcoming uh, Robert Pattinson Batman movie. So it makes sense why when you look at the Batman that's in this book, like we've seen the first two issues, 
as illustrated by Andrea Sorrentino, it certainly looks like Robert Pattinson when he doesn't have the the cowl on, right? So uh, that's the writer, that's the artist. The colors are by Jordi Belair. The letters, who we haven't known all this time, the other three that I've mentioned, Tomlin, Sorrentino, Belair, they're on the cover credits, so at least we've been able to talk about uh, what a great job they've done. Steve Wands is a letterer. So finally we get we get to uh, give Steve Wands some credit because the lettering in this is is done really, really well also. Uh, overall, it was enjoyable. I wonder how much it'll in, of this storyline we might actually see in the movie. It was kind of interesting to, to have um, a love interest for Bruce Wayne that wasn't some socialite or beautiful crusading reporter, you know, a la Vicky Vale, you know, to have his love interest be kind of a, a street level character, you know, a cop, a detective for the Gotham City Police Department that isn't your, you know, she's Asian. She has dark hair. She's, she's, I wouldn't say butch, but you know, she's not glamorous or anything. She's, she's a cop. She's doing her job. And so, um, you know, it's not her, her beauty isn't, this isn't somebody that Bruce would, you know, have on his arm and walk into some gala or something like that, you know? Uh, so that was, that was, I really like that aspect of, of the story as far as who was behind it all along, you know, kind of cliche, uh, it didn't really have much impact. I, I think, unfortunately, the third issue here is the weakest of the three. A little bit forgettable on how it all uh, plays out. I, I sort of feel like it's not that the ending didn't live up to what the promise of what came before. Because, again, it makes sense, everything that, that happens. But it just felt a little <clears throat> anticlimactic. I mean, this this imposter Batman had been built up to be somebody, like, important, you know, like, you know, he, he goes up against Bruce and they're almost a match for each other here. And Bruce Wayne, who's traveled around the world and, and trained and, you know, granted, he's at the beginning of his career. He's not as formidable as he would you would expect him to be later. But he has a tough time and then come to find out it's just another it's just another cop, you know, that that was tired of uh, people that Batman had arrested going free because of, you know, legal technicalities and whatnot and, you know, being captured by vigilante and everything. And it's, I get it. Like cops are trained, but I mean, not to the level of Bruce Wayne. So I don't know. It just, it felt a little anticlimactic to me. I liked the tone of the story. thought the art was fantastic. Um, but, but more than anything, kind of the tone, the gritty feel of it is where it really succeeds for all three issues. But in terms of the narrative, I just kind of felt like this third issue was, um, was the weakest of the three, unfortunately. So uh, your mileage may vary. And uh, I imagine if you're a huge fan of, the style and the tone of the upcoming Batman movie that you'll probably like this. Cause again, it's written by the, the same guy, you know, screen screenplay for the movie and this black label book uh, have the same writer. So uh, what did you think Rocky? Well, I, I like this. I, I, I agree. It's probably a little weaker. I think the second issue is probably the strongest of the three. I like the second issue because it, uh, it focused on the, on the budding relationship and the developing relationship between detective Wong and, and Bruce Wayne. And Ultimately, in, in this issue, Detective Wong discovers that Bruce Wayne is, is Batman. And, of course, she thinks Batman is the one that's, you know, it's there's an imposter going around. But, you know, D Detective Wong is, is not is not sure exactly if there is an imposter that maybe Batman is the, the bad guy going around pretending to be Batman really is Batman and Batman is bad. I mean, no one really knows. That's part of the central mystery. And what I what I like what Matson Tomlin has done here is that he's created Batman's own mythology in a way that the people of Gotham, even at the end of this third issue, and this this ends the series, 
there's still an open question. Was it an imposter? You know, is Batman, it's still, it's really built up this legend of Batman. And, you know, I also like how they, how this, this other cop, this corrupt cop was actually this imposter Batman. And the only reason he was able to get away with, with, with making people believe that he was Batman was because, well, not only is he very well trained, similar to how Bruce Wayne is, but there's there's this other this sort of street bum this this Otis Flanagan who is is very familiar with the underworld is very familiar with the tunnels under underneath Gotham City. This corrupt cop was using this Otis Flanagan uh, in order to 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 basically get around as Gotham as much as he did, and so it, it was very easy. It's very easy to see how this this imposter Batman was getting around Gotham as quickly as, uh, of course, Bruce Wayne as Batman did. And you can see how this, this level of corruption, you, you could see how it, how it played out. And it was very convincing. Meanwhile, you've got, I love the take on Leslie Tompkins. I love the fact that she thinks of Bruce Wayne. She, you know, her attitude is Bruce Wayne, you know, you could fix Gotham if, if, if you, if you, if you, you're Bruce Wayne. You could fix Gotham if you let yourself fix Gotham. You know, she considers Batman an affliction on Bruce Wayne. Like, Batman is some kind of curse uh, preventing Bruce Wayne from being the true cure for Gotham. And, of course, Bruce Wayne doesn't quite... Bruce Wayne has all this rage, and the only person that helped him deal with that rage was uh, Detective Wong. And ultimately, their relationship uh, comes to fruition at the end of this. But very well done. I also like at the end here... Uh, there's a hint at the ventriloquist. <laughs> we we uh, we were introduced to Wesker Industries in the first and second issue, and of course Wesker being uh, you know part of uh, the ventriloquist lore, and the son of Wesker becomes the ventriloquist. But Bruce Batman ends up sending the, this young would-be ventriloquist villain to Leslie Tompkins for therapy at the end of the issue. So it's sort of a hint of a future villain to come. I thought it was very well done. You could, I could definitely feel sort of a cinematic taste to this. You could, it's very easy to imagine Robert Pattinson in this role in the, in the Batman in this particular story. I'm having said this, uh, when I when I read this, do am I looking forward more to the Batman movie? Do I think this Batman movie is going to be different than what we've gotten before in Batman movies? The answer is a definite yes. Will I like it more than Ben Affleck Batman? I'm not sure. I I I. I I love Ben Affleck Batman. I, I don't think I'll like it better, but it definitely has its own unique flair, his unique. This is Matson Tomlin's Batman. Definitely his it's is its own unique take. And it's uh dare I say, this is a much more human and vulnerable and almost dark and depressing Batman. Uh perhaps it's been criticized ahead of time as being an emo Batman. <laughs> I hope that's not the case. But anyways, I didn't mind this and it'll be interesting to see how uh how the movie plays out because Madsen Tomlin did write the screenplay for the upcoming uh, Batman movie. So we'll see how that, we'll see how it works out, but this is not a bad series. And those who are interested in the Batman movie, you might want to check out Batman, the imposter to get a taste of what might, what we can expect in the Batman the movie when it comes out. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up the relationship between Batman and Leslie Tompkins. Cause it's really sort of in the, in the background, you know, it starts out as a very in, in your face, uh, when you're reading it in the first issue and then throughout it sort of serves as the backbone of the series. I really like their, their relationship. Um, it's a little bit of a different dynamic than the classic Leslie Tompkins uh, in the comics and the fact that she's a person of color 
and a very strong character in this uh, in this series. I, I definitely enjoyed that. Uh, all right, up next, this one. Uh, yeah, we we had some. Rocky and I were even talking about this book over the weekend, so just to <laughs> warn everybody. Uh, yeah, so it's uh, it's Black Manta number four. It's written by Chuck Brown. Matthew Dow Smith is the artist. Marisa Louise does the colors. Clayton Cowell on letters. This is uh, part four <laughs> of five, I believe. Five, no, part four of six. Um, and it's a pre- it says right there on the front cover, Prelude to Aquaman. So we, you know we have the big Aquaman series coming up from um, Brandon Thomas next year. Uh, and this is supposed to get people excited for it, I guess. So <laughs> what did you think, Rocky? <laughs> Well, as uh, I, I want to be, I want to be clear on one thing here. I do think that um, Chuck Brown, if uh, to give him the the best compliment that I can, I do think that he's got a, an interesting story in his mind. Unfortunately, I don't think it's being executed very well in terms of pacing and the way that he's putting it out on the page. And I don't think that he's not getting a lot of help from the artist. In this case, Matthew Dell Smith. Uh, the art here is. Um, is I think it's it's surprisingly um, I, I want to be diplomatic, but this isn't up to task. I, I'm very surprised by this. Even the coloring is off to me. I find the art here to be very uh, by the numbers, literally by the numbers. It's like uh, it's like there's almost numbers in the various spots, and and then the colors comes along, and for some reason, even the sky is orange. The sky is orange. The, the the sea isn't. This ocean isn't really blue. There there's no nuance in the coloring. This this character named Torrid, who is uh, who's imbued with this, who has this necklace of Arach, uh, Araculum, Arac, Arac, Oracalcum, is the metal that's around her neck. Uh, she was the one that came out of Doom's doorway on Themyscira, and her name is Torrid. They actually they finally gave her a name in this issue because. Uh, I criticized Chuck Brown before because a lot of the characters, I didn't, it took a while for us to know that Devil's Ray is the arch nemesis here. We finally got a name for this woman in white hair who came out of Doom's Doorway. Her name, they gave her a name, Torrid. Um, A lot, there is a plot to be had in this story, but it's, it's very, it's very frustrating to try to get to get to the heart of this here. I'm not sure what Torrid's powers are. I'm not sure she's, um, uh, Torrid even has a creature with her that, that uses spontaneous evolutionary jumps as a defense mechanism. Apparently I'm not really sure why that's relevant. Apparently a hundred, 10,000 years ago, um, when, when Black Manta and Gallus and his partner Gallus traveled into the past with the help of the gentleman's ghost last issue, they saw ancient Atlanteans escape to the shores, uh, to the shores, to these shores that they're on right now. <laughs> Not really sure what shores they're on. And he thinks that he's hoping to find some tech that will help, that will save their lives because they're being poisoned by this uh, oracalcum metal. They're both, they're both dying. Black Manta's dying and so is, so is Torrid. And this particular metal they're hoping that they can cure themselves because this same, this same, or this same particular ore was was part of the ancient Atlanteans that escaped Atlantis ten thousand years ago, and 
So, in the meantime, Devil's Ray, who for some reason that is not explained, he thinks of Black Manta as a false prophet. We don't know why, false prophet of what. He wants to utilize this oral, this metal, this oracalcum, in order to create, uh, to forge himself a, a new trident to use as a weapon. For what purpose, we don't know. Uh, meanwhile, Aquaman, Arthur Curry, is trying to protect Atlantis because some of De the Devil Ray's men attacked Atlantis and released a deadly gas, and he's trying to prevent them from attacking again. Um, again, I'm I'm not really sure how all this is tied into play, but this is what's so frustrating about this. It's clear to me that Chuck Brown wants to create a new mythology. This is leading into an event called Aquaman, but this is done in a very confusing manner. The art is is not up to task. I, I I'm there's I'm just gonna say that um, the art doesn't do the uh, story any favors. I don't think the dialogue does the story any favors. I think it should be more clear. I think that this is. Uh, this isn't the greatest. This is not a great combination of artist and narrative. Uh, however, I am piecing together the story, and this is building a new mythology for Aquaman and the Atlanteans, and it's it's making it more diverse. And there is something to be said here. It's it, where it's leading. By the way, is it looks like Black Manta's ancestry is going to be linked to uh, an offshoot of the Atlanteans that escaped Atlantis ten thousand years ago. And I, there's probably going to lead to maybe, who knows, some kind of civil war at some point in the future. Uh, similar maybe to what's happening on the, with, the with the three tribes of Amazons. I'm not sure. But in any event, um, this is confusing. I had to reread the previous issues a few times and this one to sort of get a handle on what's going on. And uh, I, I wish the art was better. Again, I think that Chuck Brown has, he's got great intentions here. I applaud his efforts to expand the mythology. I just wish that the story was a little bit more clear and we had a better artist. And, and that's about as polite as I can put it. Yeah, I, I agree with you for the most part. So, you know, in, in terms of a, a personal preference, you know, and I've talked about this before in terms of this series. First of all, Black Manta has never been a character that, had his roots in Atlantis in terms of, you know, having ancestors from Atlantis, that sort of changes the dynamic, right? Like he's always been the, the, the nemesis of, of Aquaman and, and of man's world, you know, and it, it was sort of that, the, the two sides, right? Like Aquaman's of, of Atlantis, he's from the sea. And then you have Black Manta, who's this pirate who, you know, it's that dynamic where he, he doesn't belong to the ocean and he's used technology to sort of bring himself to a point where he can fight Aquaman, you know, in the water, almost on equal footing. But it's that it's the armor, it's it's the outfit, it's it's the technology that's necessary for him to to use in order to be on that equal footing that shows he's so much of uh, a character from man's world. And you're sort of erasing that you're sort of taking that away from him by now linking him to to ancestors uh, in Atlantis's past and, and linking them to magic. So just for me personally, I'm not a big, big fan of doing that. I think, you know, I, again, you're, you're adding to the character and you're, you're 
adding layers to him. And, and typically that's a good thing to do just for me, again, as a personal preference, I don't know that I'm, I don't know that I want that from Black Manta. I don't know that it's necessary for me. He's already a villain that I really, really enjoy because he is just who he is, a pirate, a mercenary. He's out for money, you know, and now Chuck Brown's put him in a situation where he's, he's dying. Uh, this oracalcum that he has is killing him and he's finding out that he has roots back in Atlantis's past. So we talk about this Aquaman series coming up. Is that going to be a, a way of turning Black Manta into an anti-hero like, you know, com big comic book, the big two, basically Marvel and DC tend to want to do right. So they can have a series called Black Manta and, and have it sell. But I don't know. It just, it just seems strange. It seems a strange editorial choice to me, especially with the Aquaman movie coming up, Aquaman 2, where, you know, I thought he was a great character in the first Aquaman movie. He, he very much, in terms of the aesthetic and he's out against Aquaman, he's very much of the surface world. There's no part of him that seems like there's any sort of redemption or, or you know, redemptive value to him. He is a bad guy, right? And now in this Chuck Brown series, we're going a different direction. We're we're sort of making him a sympathetic character. Are we supposed to feel bad that he's dying? So I don't know. It's it's, but <laughs> but I I will give credit to Chuck Brown, like you said, because he is. I, I in fact I maybe give him a more credit than you do because I I actually don't mind the, the scripting or the dialogue. I like sort of the gruffness and the the shortness that um, that Black Manta has when he talks to people. You know, he's a man of kind of a few words. Uh, and in that way, it reminds me of the version of, uh, of Black Manta from the very first time I ever was introduced to the character on the Super Friends cartoon back in the day, that really deep robotic voice. Um, but you're right. Uh, it is a little bit confusing. Um, I don't know that this is, well, I, I don't think this is Chuck Brown's strongest work. You know, he, he co-writes Bitterroot with uh, David Walker. They won the Eisner for that. That's, that's much better. But, you know, he has a, he has a co-writer and it's, you know, second set of eyes can, can do a lot of things. But even that being said, I think, like you, uh, that the art is not up to task. And I think if the art was better, if the art was more in service to the story, it would, it could kind of cover up some of the weaknesses uh, that Chuck, you know, they might say Chuck's had in, in terms of pacing or, um, or, or plot holes or, or things like that. But unfortunately, the artwork is, is to a level where it sort of needs the narrative to prop it up. And yeah. neither one is strong enough on their own to help the other one out. And so they end up having to stand on their own. And unfortunately, I think they're both sort of lacking a little bit. Neither, neither one, in my mind, is, is strong enough to stand on its own. Uh, with a little bit better art, you know, if the art was just, you know, average or a little above average, I don't think you'd notice the, the, the troubles in, in the narrative. If the narrative was a little bit better than average, the art might not be as noticeable. But because they're, they're both letting me down a little bit, you know, again, again, this is just me personally. Um, it, it feels like a, more than anything, it feels like missed potential. I want to like this more than I do. I like black Manta as a character. I think there are interesting ideas here. Like, like, you know, despite my own personal preference of just let black Manta be a bad guy. I think there are interesting ideas here. I'm curious to see what's going to happen. I'm curious to see what this Aquaman series is going to be about. Um, but unfortunately, this is it's just not living up to uh, its potential. So, um, again, no, no, you know, nothing personal against the creators. I know they're doing their their uh, their best here, but it's just not quite working for me. And, and what's interesting is 
So I've seen Matthew Dow Smith's art before over at Marvel. He's done some uh, work on the Doctor Who books before, and his art is much cleaner. So I, I'm not sure. Um, I'm just not sure why it seems so unfinished here. Uh, and to Rocky's point, also the color, the color work is not. And I, I don't know if the color, the colorist is is getting uh, Marisa Louise. I've seen her do much better coloring than this. Uh, I, I don't know if she's getting the pages late. I don't know if if the nature of the the roughness of the line work that Matthew Dow Smith uh, is giving her is, is not leaving her any outs. I'm I'm just not sure. But it's just in terms of color, it's just such a dreary book. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, it it's very it's bland. Already... It's very bland. All the colors are one. There's no there's no nuance in the coloring. There's no shading. It's all it's yeah yeah, yeah. it's like I said. It's very dreary. Like you you just opened up and flipped through it, and you're like, God, it, do I want to read this? It doesn't even look very good you know yeah uh and and the last thing i'll say is um again because the art isn't super detailed uh, we're getting this devil's ray character who looks so much like black manta in terms of his costume yeah is there a connection there like we haven't le learned anything it, is it just because the art's kind of sloppy and unfinished that they sort of look familiar yeah. or is there a connection again is it the narrative that's letting me down is it the art i'm not sure um, so I don't know. I mean, I, what I'm hoping is that uh, it all comes together in the last couple issues. Um, and, and despite the art not maybe being as strong as it could be that that we end up getting, you know, value out of it. So uh, anyway, let's move on to uh, another book where don't know how I feel about the art. We've, we've talked about it several times. The fact that it's uh, in black and white. It's Future State Gotham number eight. The Next Joker, Part 1, The Grift of Laughter, written by Dennis Culver. We have art by Nicola Zemengia, uh, cover by Simone DeMeo. There's no color again. It, and this isn't the Giannis Milligianis art that we had seen previously. Um, and I've seen Nicola's art colored before. So again, I'm not sure why we don't get colors here. But um, I, I don't know how to feel about this story. I, I like Grifter. Um, it's, it's a fun story in that it calls back a little bit to, uh, the Matthew Rosenberg grifter story we had in one of the future state backups where he was trying to get, uh, he was trying, I can't even remember who it was now, but he was trying to help somebody escape from the magistrate con controlled Gotham. Um, so it's, it's kind of fun. It's, it's actually interesting as much as I don't like the Joker, it's interesting to get a more physical Joker. You know, I always complain about the Joker, how he's. You know, if he really existed, Batman would beat him in like 30 seconds because he's not physically uh, imposing. Well, this is a physically imposing Joker. He's almost Venom-esque when we finally see him take his mask off. Um, so I, I like that, that he's a little bit um, more powerful, still completely psychotic, definitely a match for Grifter. Um, but at the end of the day, what I'm asking myself is, we got the end of Fear State. We know the Magistrate failed. We know this is not a future that's coming to pass. Do we need this book? Because I sure the hell don't feel like we need this book at all. Not not even a little bit. As much as I you know, enjoy Grifter as a character, this feels completely unnecessary. Um, and it almost feels like, well, maybe people know that. They read Fear State. They know it's over. They know there is no chance for that possible future to come to pass. How can we get them to keep buying a Future State Gotham book? Oh, we'll put in a future Joker. <laughs> so I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, maybe enjoyed it more than me, Rocky. But yeah, I just thought it was. I just thought it was okay. Uh, I'm ready for this book to go away, and I still I continue to not understand why it's in black and white. So yeah, what do you think? Uh, 
Well, I thought uh, I want to. Uh, I've been a little bit uh, hard on Dennis Culver early on in the in the earlier issues of uh, uh, Future State Gotham, uh, but I think uh, you know he when he started out with Joshua Williamson helping him out. I, I didn't like the earlier issues. Dennis Golfer's come into his own here. He's, uh, I think he's proven him. He's, he's gotten better. Uh, this is actually, this, you know, but for the coloring, if I, you know, just reading this and pre- pretending it's, you know, if I'm just evaluating this as a story, this is about Hush. I'm like, I, you know, if people are wondering where was, where was Hush during Fear State and Future State, oh, here he is. And it's actually not a bad story. It's not a bad story. It's even got the owl representing the city's old money. The whale has got these other characters, the dog, JC, J, uh, J, Gotham's uh, top crooked cop. It's got, it's got a number of different characters here in a Gotham Future State that I think are, are actually interesting. And Hush actually seems, this actually, this is actually well done. This is, this art is, is good. And, um, it, it has grown on me. I'm still not this, you know, I'm not a manga guy and I, I always, I always associate and I realize black and white is not just manga, but I associate black and white comics with manga, even though, you know, that would be un, unfair of me, but so be it. Uh, I, I thought this wasn't bad. If you're, if you, if you're into the, the court of owls, if you like hush, this is, this is a decent enough story. I just, um, again, I thought. Uh, I'm baffled as to why Gotham State, Future State Gotham, why this comic book exists. Uh, I'm baffled why it exists as an ongoing. I, I, I'm really curious to know if this is even selling. To be honest, I'd like to know what the sales are in this. I don't. No one, no one is talking about this at my local comic shop, so I don't know what's. I, you know, I guess maybe I guess speculators are buying it because of the covers, but I, uh, it probably deserves more love than it's getting, but. Uh, you know, I'm I'm not I'm not getting this. I never got this. I got the first issue, and that was it. And I'm I, I haven't got it since because I've got no interest in owning a black and white uh, manga like Batman comic. And uh, sadly, that's just the way it is. And uh, yeah, um, I love Grifter, but man, you gotta you gotta give me some color. And you got, I just this just rubs me the wrong way. It's just it's just not for me. Sad to say. Yeah, good point on on. Hush, you know, it was nice seeing a future version of him as well. But again, I go back to the fact that we already know this future is not going to exist. So what, what are we doing here? You know, wait, it's a, it feels like a waste of time. The other thing yeah. that I'll mention, um, like I mentioned before, it has a backup and it's a reprint of a Batman black and white story that came out in February of this year. So, you know, at least it wasn't like last time where it was a reprint of a comic that came out in August. You know, it was barely two months old. You know, at least this story is what... Uh, uh, 10 months old uh, and it's great with Nick Dragota art. It's, it's really, really cool. If, if you've never read any Nick Dragota's stuff or, or seen his artwork, uh, especially the East of West, that's the vibe I get here. Uh, the series he does at image with, uh, with Jonathan Hickman. But again, I've already bought Batman black and white. I don't need this. Re- I, you know, again, I, I'm like Rocky. I'm not buying physical copies of, of future state because I'm not paying for black, you know, black and white comic, especially not one that I'm paying a dollar extra for a backup that I already paid for. Uh, 10 months ago so uh, anyway let's move on we have uh, Teen Titans Academy number nine homecoming Tim Sheridan's a writer Mike Norton artist hi-fi colorist Rob Lee letters we saw last issue uh, and and thus the homecoming that uh, Roy Harper showed up at Teen Titans Academy at the school that's named after him and man that's got to be weird (laughs) if you think you're dead they think you're dead they've named the school after you and you show up at the front door so uh, what'd you think of this one, Rock? 
It was, um, uh, well, first I got to give Tim Sheridan a compliment. This is actually one of the first issues since the beginning where he actually named the characters. There, I, I didn't have to go back to previous issues to find out who the characters were. I, I had to do a little bit of hunting. Uh, but he actually gave, they were actually named when, when the characters spoke to each other, they actually said the name of the pe person they were talking to. So it was actually easier to piece together who all these students were, uh, a little bit easier than in previous issues. Um, so now having said that, <laughs> um, I, I guess let's focus on the positive, uh, Roy Harper showed up last issue, and Ro we got Roy Harper and Wally West uh, greeting each other at the beginning of this comic, which is good. Wally West, uh, last time last time Wally saw Roy, Roy died in the pages of uh, Flash, uh, and he he saw he saw Roy give his life uh, in the sort of the the redoing over, I guess, or the revamping of Heroes in Crisis. Uh, but of course, Roy Harper, we know, is alive. Uh, he is alive. He was he he was the the Black Lantern slash Omega Lantern, Darkseid's Omega Lantern. And at the end of Infinite Frontier, he ultimately had the Black Ring taken away from him. The Omega, I, he was no longer the Omega Lantern, and he was returned to Earth. And be, but before he returned to Earth, he was he saw a vision that so he knows that his daughter Leon is still alive. So he's come back down to Earth, but his first place that he's going to go. Before he looks for his daughter, Leon, is that he goes to Teen Titans Academy. And Roy Harper is very surprised to discover that there's a statue of him up front and that the, the school is actually ca called the Roy Harper Teen Titans Academy uh, as a tribute to him. And he's there. And um, essentially in this issue, we've got, uh, we finally know who's been, who's really been, it, it's not just Red X that's been trying to recruit and steal away all these t students from Teen Titans Academy. But apparently so has Simon of the Fearsome Five. Uh, he wants to create a new Fearsome Five. And he wants to he wants his five members to be the Wanderer, Tress, Bolt, uh, Dane, and Red X. He wants those five to be a member of his new Fearsome Five. And Alright, Rocky. So let me... So I haven't seen the Fearsome Five in... I can't even remember since when. Yeah. So is this, uh, and you know, maybe you have seen them, them more recently than me. My my question is, is this a new look? Is this time? Is this the first time Simon has looked like this, where he doesn't have like the fishbowl head? I I, I think know? so. You know, you 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 raise a good point. I I I was actually I was surprised. I I I always thought of the fearsome five as being really evil. I yeah. never thought thought of Simon as being someone that would go and want to recruit students at a school. This 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 is why this felt very very much off to me. This is a very odd choice for writer Tim Sheridan to do. Uh, I don't, you know, I think it's unfair of me as a reviewer to play script doctor. <laughs> but if I was going to be script doctor, the last person I would have recruiting the students would be Simon from the Fierce and Bribe. But I mean, but that's that's all well and good. So this is the the new DC Omniverse. That's all well and good. But I'm I don't really understand. I mean, to me, the argument that Red X had about wanting to recruit the students. I mean, Red X is a teenager himself. Apparently, we don't know who Red X is. But so on what basis is Red X going to acquire students? What's Red X going to teach them? He's also their age. So. That's nonsense. So what's Simon going to do? He wants to recruit, create a new Fearsome Five to what? To protect them against what? 
I mean, the sales pitch that Simon has here doesn't really make a lot of sense. I don't find it convincing at all saying that, well, you're just going to be recruited and used by these other heroes and there's going to be another crisis here and another crisis there. Come to me and I'll protect you from all that. Well, why? Isn't that kind of what heroes do? Isn't that why they're at the academy so that they can participate in all the very things that Simon wants to protect them from? It just seems crazy to me. And then and then to top it off, Red X ends up literally decapitating Simon at the end before before the rest of the Titans show up. So before Donna Troy he, and before... Does he, though? What's that? Does he, though? I or, mean, Simon, the whole thing is he controls mental abilities. So I wonder if he... Oh, fair enough. Is it all? It, it might. It might be a massive hallucination. Yes, to mask their escape is what I was thinking. Sure, I, I guess that's a good point. Maybe, maybe that's a, maybe that's what it is. Uh, and you know, uh, but I, I don't know if it is. Like it seems because Red X is is clearly against Simon. Red X want is angry at the is angry at. Uh, at the Wanderer and, and Dane and, and Tress for even con- considering joining Simon's first and five. Because how could you do that? And it just seems, this seems like a, such a strange, this, all this drama seems so forced to me. It doesn't feel natural. And, and that's what I, I, I'm not really like, that's why I haven't liked this series so far. The drama in this school, we never see the students in class. In this issue, we see them organizing a dance, like an enchantress enchanted by the sea. And Garth shows up, the previous aqua boy or the old aqua boy or whatever. Garth shows up and, you know, uses his powers to push, put the water on the, on the ceiling to, 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 you know, to make the dance look so cool. And, and then, so we have this, we have this trichotomy of, of, they're supposed to be students at Teen Titans Academy, but Red X wants them to be his students. Now Simon wants them to join the Fearsome Five. And it just it just seems like kind of a just messy. Just messy. And we and we know we know Amanda Waller wants to have at least one student from the Teen Titans Academy to join her. And that's going to be part of the drama and the plot leading into the War for Earth 3. So this whole thing seems like disconnected to me. And it it doesn't, um, you know, it doesn't really feel cohesive to me, to be quite blunt. And then at the end of this, Red X, not at the end of this issue, now if it's a hallucination, Dane and Red X escape after supposedly killing Simon. So it seems to me that Simon, I, I, that's why I'm inclined to think it's not a hallucination, because Red X is, is literally holding Simon's head and then takes off with Dane. But I suppose it's possible that you're right, it could be a hallucination, but that's one hell of a hallucination. But <laughs> but in any event, the whole thing just seems a little bit, uh, uh, just a little bit bonkers to me. Uh, I don't know. This is a school that apparently you parents, you can send your children to, but some of the children have secret identities. The te- Some of the teachers have secret identities. Nobody has to say who they are. Everyone can have a secret. Like, is this... The, this isn't even the case in in in, in the X Men over in 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 Strange Academy in the X or the X Men for the Marvel Universe. So the rules here seem all wonky. It seems all batty. It just it just really seems something is amiss here, and, and it's not working. And the Red X thing is, I continue. I'm I'm just so frustrated with Red X. This isn't really working for me, but I, 
whatever. Uh, I just I just want this to end. I want this Red X thing to end. I, I don't know where this is going. I'm still not entirely captivated by this, but I don't know. I, I, I'm frustrated. Uh, how do you feel about it, Chase? Yeah, I, I agree. You know, I hate to sound like a broken record, but my problem with this issue is the same problem that I talked about last issue. And where I was saying that Tim Sheridan's not, he's not finishing off any stories. He doesn't finish off any plot threads. Right. And that's the, the problem. Like he keeps just starting new ones. And what does he do in this issue? He starts a new plot thread. Here comes Simon to recruit members of the Teen Titans Academy who don't have families, who he thinks kind of views as loners that he thinks will join up with him, which I, I agree with you. His, his reasoning, his logic is, very tenuous at best you know he's saying okay don't believe what they're telling you they're lying to you they're adults they lie and they're just using you so what trade one master for another i mean at least matt you know the one of the kids that he recruits says the same thing i'm not thinking about throwing in with this guy i want to go out on my own i want to make my own decision you know red x kind of the same thing so at least it's acknowledged in the story but you know as interesting as that may be in potential for storyline that it might have finish off some damn threads again like we we said it from the very first issue of teen titans academy don't drag this red x thing out so much and and think you're cute with it that it becomes obnoxious and annoying but you know i i guess you don't have a choice when you're a comic book writer it's gotta (laughs) become obnoxious and annoying when it's a mystery like this uh because you know so many people are writing for the trade well we at least got to wait till the second, the end of the second trade, right? So that's issue ten. We're only on what issue eight here? Issue nine? Issue eight? Uh, issue nine? So maybe, maybe next issue we'll find out who Red X is. I, I'm not going to be holding my breath. Uh, but, I will but, say, sorry, I, I was just going to no, quickly, go quickly add that it, one thing I liked. I liked Roy Harper mentioning that he wants to find Leon and 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 Donna Troy and the rest of the Titans. Told Roy that they would help him look for Leon, and we know that his daughter Leon. Is, is the Cheshire cat over in Alleytown in the pages of Catwoman. And we know that Cheshire, the mother, uh, the former uh, lover and, and mother of Leon, ha- confronts Leon and introduces herself to Leon in the pages and the next issue of Catwoman, which will be coming out, which we're going to be reviewing, I think, next week. And so a uh, little, maybe a potential spoiler alert there. But it's I, I like that. So I, I like the draw. I like the fact that Roy is going to be looking for Leon and we might expect to see uh, Cheshire Cat as a member of Titans Academy in the future because we already have Flash's children, Jay and Iris, Irie, are going to be members of Teen Titans Academy because I think if we have some more familiar characters in the Teen Titans Academy, it might, I think it might raise the status of this title, hopefully. Yeah, again, but it just feels overstuffed to me, like... Yeah, you're you're right. It it was great to see some some interaction between Roy and and the old Titans, but this is Teen Titans Academy, so should should that even be there? Like, I, I thank God we have Titans United for people that want the old feel of what the the Titans feels like, right? Because this this is trying to be so many things that it ends up being nothing. You know, when you try to do there's there's too many plates spinning. You try to do too much, and uh, it just feels like Tim Sheridan's bitten off. Uh, more than he can chew. And in, in a way, it's a compliment. I've talked before about, you know, it's almost like he's establishing a Sheridan universe here uh, within the, the DCU. Um, but unfortunately, you can't do that with just one bo- one monthly book. Uh, there's too many characters. They don't get enough spotlight. Like Rocky said, at least we get a little bit more of, of the actual characters' names in this one. 
Um, but there's there's too much going on. We need to wrap up some of these plot threads. Uh, Rocky makes a good point. This whole thing is just messy. Um, Mike Norton, you know, I love the guy, but a, a superhero artist he is not, and especially a team book. No, it's too much. Uh, Rafa Sandoval's the the artist for this book. His covers are fantastic uh, for for this particular one. So, yeah, the, the art didn't really impress me on this one either. So for me, this was a, a bit of a miss. Um, and I want to. This is a book I want to like more than I do, unfortunately, because I think it ha has potential, but it's getting bogged down with just too many different. The story, the scope of the story is too big. It needs to be narrowed. You need to end some of these plot threads. Don't start new ones. Just give us some answers to some of these questions. Focus on the kids. Focus on the young heroes. Um, finish off the Red X. My God. And just humanize these characters for us. Make us care about these young students. That's the biggest problem. I don't care. I, I haven't been told enough about them to care what happens to them. Oh, so five of them have basically been kidnapped. Simon's trying to recruit them. I don't care. You haven't made me care about the characters. So what do I care if they, if Simon kills them all? I don't, I don't know them. Mm. So anyway, uh, let's move <laughs> on to uh, the next book. It's Pennyworth number five. It's written by Scott Brian Wilson. Juan Gideon is the artist. John Rush does colors. AW's DC Hopkins is on letters. Again, if you're a big fan of the the show that was originally on Epics and now is on uh, HBO Max, the Pennyworth series, which just got renewed for a third season, this is going to be right up your alley. It's Alfred Pennyworth back in the day, World War II, when he was working for MI5, kind of the prelude to MI6. That's who James Bond works for, kind of the, the secret service, the intelligence agency of the British Empire. And this is just a lot of fun, um, seeing Alfred reminding us of how formidable he is and, and how he chose to um, look after Bruce Wayne and be a part of the Wayne family. So uh, again, if you're a big fan of, of that series, or if you just love Alfred Pennyworth, and thank God we have this because we have no Alfred Pennyworth in the regular Bat titles, which is uh, really <laughs> unfortunate <laughs> that they haven't brought him back yet. He can't come back soon enough in my mind. Like Alfred's one of those characters I did not realize how much I loved Alfred until he's been gone for God, it's been a couple of years now. Um, so yeah, I, I'm enjoying this. It's a dual narrative. We we have flashbacks telling us stories of a mission uh, that Alfred undertook during World War II. Meanwhile, in present day, he's been kidnapped. Um, and it seems like th his kidnap in the present day has everything to do with this mission that they're flashing back. And uh, the issue ends on a cliffhanger when he's introduced to an old flame of his who... Uh, was his partner at MI5 who betrayed him. Um, and she comes walking in on the last page and she looks like she hasn't aged uh, a day. Whereas Alfred himself, obviously he's got the wrinkles and he's bald and, you know, time has passed for him. And um, this surely person is, hasn't aged a day and he's obviously taken aback by that. So we'll see how that all plays out. This is a seven issue mini. This is issue five. And, um, I think the cover, the main cover is fantastic. Um, it's the British flag that uh, at one point, one of the red bars turns into like a heartbeat monitor. Um, yeah. While Alfred's running the other direction, wearing his hospital smock because he <laughs> does, he does get uh, rescued from the Arctic uh, and ends up in the hospital and has to fight in the, 
you know, hospital gown that if you've ever been to the hospital, you know, there's no back, right? Just your bare ass cheeks to the wind. So it's uh, I love that cover. It's fantastic. So yeah, not enough. This is another one of those titles that I think I know it probably has a limited audience uh, for people that are big fans of Alfred or love the Pennyworth TV show. Uh, so that that's probably part of the reason I don't hear a lot of people talking about it, but, it, but it's just a really fun series. And if you're like me and you miss Alfred as a character, uh, this is hitting that, that, uh, spot, scr scratching that itch, so to speak. So, uh, and I, I know you were a little behind on this Rocky. Have you uh, had a chance to catch up? Uh, yeah, I have. Yeah. I, I'm enjoying this and, uh, I love the cover too. I love the, you, you saw the, you mentioned the, or almost like a cardiogram on the cover, uh, the heartbeat because Alfred of course is, is freezing to death and his heart is slowing down and he's, he's ultimately saved from freezing to death in the Arctic. And that's juxtaposed against his present day uh, incarceration where he is ultimately confronted by this Shirley who looks young. And this is, you know, 30, 40 years, possibly 30, 40, 50 years later. I'm not sure how Alfred's supposed to be in the present, but uh, I like it. This is uh, uh, this actually it's this series that makes me miss uh, miss Alfred Pennyworth all the more. I, I wish he was back in the mainstream Batman comics, but it's nice to get some history of Alfred Pennyworth because really when you think about it, of course, Alfred, of course, this is a guy, if he's the butler to the future Batman, you know that this guy, you know, what Bruce Wayne must have learned from his butler. I mean, Bruce Wayne didn't have to travel around the world to learn about intelligence operations. He could have learned it right from his butler, and I think he did. And I think there's a lot of stories that couldn't be told. Some have been told already about, you know, Alfred probably uh, training Batman or a young Bruce Wayne. But uh, this here in Pennyworth is just uh, with with a young... This is right up my alley. I, I, I love the TV show. I don't know. I don't know if it's been renewed for a second season or not. Maybe, maybe, uh, third, or, it's been or renewed third, for, a, sorry, for yes. a third season, yeah. Right, because I'm on. I'm in. I'm halfway through the uh, second, but uh, in any event, I like it. I like this comic. I, you know, it, it's actually on my pull list. Uh, kudos to Scott Brian Wilson, I, the writer. He captures it just right. The artist uh, Juan Gedeon, I think, does a, a pretty good job here, uh, drawing all the characters. He's very good at you know drawing the the younger and the older versions of Alfred. I I, I could always tell what time period they were in because of the art. It was well done. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying this series. So I'm quite happy with it. Two, two more issues to go. Yeah. I'm really curious to see how it's all going to wrap up. And uh, even more than that, I'm really curious how they're going to bring Alfred back. I cannot believe they haven't brought him back already. Yeah. <laughs> um, geez, man, give, give me my Alfred back. Uh, anyway, let's yeah. move on. Uh, next up we have Batgirls number one debut issue with about a thousand covers. Uh, it's from Becky Clunan and Michael W. Conrad as writers, same team that brings us uh, writing team that brings us Wonder Woman. Jorge Corona is the artist, Sarah Stern on colors, Becca Carey on letters. I'm curious what your thoughts are on this one, Rocky, because I know the, the prelude and the, and the backups that we had leading into this, you weren't <laughs> a big fan of. So, yeah. Uh, but despite the fact Cassandra Kane is one of your, if not your favorite DC character, this isn't exactly the version that we've gotten before, though. Yeah, no, it's. It's not, but I, I want to. I just, I should say, I I listened to an interview with uh, Becky Cloonan and uh, Michael W. Conrad, and I, I can't, I can't remember. It was, uh, it was a YouTuber. I forget, I forget her name. But uh, in any event, I, uh, I want to be fair to Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad. I, I know they're, um, uh, th they are aware 
or at least they say they're aware of the history of 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 the of spoiler and of Cassandra Cain. And I know I know what histories they're really focusing on. Very clearly this is this you know, there this is really a buddy buddy this is a, a buddy buddies system here. This is a partnership. This is where they, they talked about how they want to they want to play off these characters of Stephanie Brown and Cassandra Kane. They want to play off each other. Cassandra Kane is is being written. Uh, uh, Michael Michael W. Conrad stated they're they're writing Cassandra Kane as somebody who is uh, as a you know is reserved has a has a lot to learn is a little not quite as outspoken. Stephanie Brown is more of the crazy party animal, and so it's it's definitely being played. And you can even tell by the covers. I mean, these covers almost look like this is written for, if not teenagers, almost preteens. If I'm looking at the the variant covers here, I mean, some of these covers are just really on the preteen level. So, you know, it's advertised as eight, ages 13 plus, and this is definitely a, a narrative like that. I mean, some of the alternate covers here, I, I, I don't think are up are up to task or worthy of being on a DC Comics cover on some of these alternate covers for this series to be blunt, but I, you know, I, you know, DC is trying to attract a different audience and, you know, look, I respect that. I mean, I say again, you know, every generation deserves to have some comic book speak to them. And, uh, you know, it might be that my, my version of Cassandra Kane is not going to be written for the time being, but that's all right. You know, I just hope that this attracts that, that audience. Now getting into the story, the, the the bad the bad person here the villain of this story is seer well seer was was built up to be this this anti oracle this powerful anti oracle this evil bitch and it ends up being this this seer appears to be just this small statured purple haired teenager who is just manipulating events and this involves Cassandra Cain and Stephanie Brown moving in with Barbara Gordon in kind of a dilapidated apartment where Oracle is setting up her own computer system in the apartment. And, and then basically they just end up, it's almost like, uh, I think it's, it's like that old Hitchcock movie. What was it? Rear window or whatever yeah. it was called, where it was, uh, you know, they, they, they spy on their neighbor and they think their neighbor's up to no good. And, and, uh, and they can't let the, their neighbors know who they really are. And so Cassandra Kane at one point, you know, she ends up being kind of mugged when she's bringing in the groceries and she can't beat up the guys wanting to mug her because she can't let them know that she's like really good at fighting because they might know that she's Cassandra Kane Batgirl. And so, so she goes out at night and beats them up. And <laughs> I'm, I, you know, and there's, I, I, I just don't find this to be um, my kind of story. Like it's, it's, I think this is a very overly simplistic this is right up there with like DC superhero girls to me, like just a little above that. This isn't sophisticated. I, in fact, this is a, I can't believe Seer, Seer was this major villain in Fear State and is now almost as like a, a kindergarten kid in front of a computer who can give Oracle a run for her money. I just, this, you know, honestly, I, I, I don't even, I don't even want to criticize it because it's so completely obviously for a younger demographic that it's almost foolish of me to point out how much of this does not fit coming out of fear state and does not fit with my, with, with the preexisting, the preexisting versions of these characters. This just doesn't work for me. And the art doesn't work for me. 
Although the art is good. I want to compliment the art. The art is good for the style that it, for this type of story that they want to tell, for the demographic that they're going for. The, it is, it's, it's great art. It's, it's fun. It's kinetic. Uh, great on facial expressions. Uh, the coloring is, is great. Uh, there's a great sequence where uh, Barbara Gordon gets them their own little, like, almost like their mopeds. They got, like, bat mopeds almost. <laughs> and they, they reject that. And instead, they, they basically take a car that some the guys at Cassandra Cain beat up. They, they, they take their car and they go on a joyride. So there's some fun moments here. You can tell that Becky Clooner and Michael W. Connor are having fun with it. And they're trying to engender and, and create some adventure for Stephanie Brown and Cassandra Kane. And I think for the large, for the most part, they succeed. So I'm not, you know, just because this isn't my Cassandra Kane doesn't mean that there isn't fun to be had in this comic. And and I, I think it's I, I hope that it finds the audience that it's geared toward. Yeah, I mean, I sort of took it with a grain of salt. Um because I felt the same way that I'm, I'm not really the target audience for this. It's clear they're going for a younger demographic. So if I look at this from outside of continuity and just read it purely for what it is, forget about fear state, forget about seer, forget about anything that comes before and just read this purely on its own is, was I entertained? And the answer is yes, I was entertained, even though I'm a big fan of Jorge Corona I don't think this is Jorge Corona's best work. I don't know that Jorge Corona's artwork suits um, a Batgirl's superhero book. Um, that's not to say, again, that the artwork's bad by any stretch. I think the artwork's quite good. And I think that particularly the color work in in conjunction with the line work that's... gives it a certain yeah. sort of fun, youthful, energetic feel. Very which much I think so. is exactly... Yeah. Yeah, so and I think that's exactly what they're going for. Yeah. So if I look at this out of context of anything else, yes, it's entertaining. Do I think it's necessarily for me? Nah, probably not. I'm you know I'm probably in that same demographic you are, um, and it's probably something where, like you said, it, it is a little simplistic, and and I I might tire of it relatively quickly. I think the way they're trying to prevent that from happening is by having it tie in to future state and the magistrate and fear state and all that kind of stuff. But again, that, that continuity is so wonky at this point. So, and I'm much more of a fan of a more sophisticated Cassandra Kane, much like yourself. And I've never been a fan of Stephanie Brown. Yeah. Neither she's, have had I. So many, <laughs> she's had so many different personalities. Like she's yeah. almost like Rose and Thorn at this point. Uh, she's had so many different, sometimes she's more serious. Sometimes she's more flaky. Here, apparently, she's a party girl. It's like, I, I can't keep track anymore of Stephanie Brown. She can just go away. I don't uh, I don't need to have her in my comics. So uh, so that being said, you know, obviously, I'm going to keep checking out the press copies, uh, press preview copies. We'll see how it all plays out. I do love some myself, some Barbara Gordon. Um, but again, like this, this characterization of her doesn't match up with what we see of her in Nightwing. Yeah. So, you know, she's she's much more matronly here which you know i guess they're trying to play up this idea that she's this you know older mentor type oracle slash backgirl to these two younger backgirls but that's not that's not how she's portrayed in tom taylor's nightwing so it's a little it's a little weird so yeah i mean i i think that if you have young readers like I, my daughter's 10 i would totally give this to her she would probably dig it yeah. um 
So, you know, 10 to 14, especially uh, girls, comic readers, probably going to love it. Um, and again, I was entertained, but, you know, like Rocky said, we're, we're just not the, the target audience for this. So, um, but kudos to, to Clunan and Conrad. I think they're doing what they set out to do. Yeah. And uh, agreed. And, and based on the previews that we saw and the backups, I did not expect to like this as much as I did. I yeah. did actually like this, but again, I just wonder how long I'll, how long before I get bored because it's not, you know, really sophisticated. So, uh, all right. Well, since it's DC, we're not done talking about Batman yet. Uh, I am Batman number four from writer John Ridley, Steven Segovia, and Christian Duse are the artists. Rex Locus does colors. Troy Pateri on letters. Ah, God, I have so many problems with this book. Um, and again, this is just, it's not working for me. And the, the biggest part of why it's not working, I've talked about this before, the characterization of Lucius Fox here makes no sense. He's anti-vigilante. He's, he's anti-Batman. What? You're Lucius Fox. How in God's name can you be anti-Batman? I don't care what trauma you went through. It doesn't make any logical sense, you know? He's buying into all the crap that Simon's saying, oh, Batman's bad for Gotham. I mean, my God, man, you know Batman is personally. You you can't, it doesn't, it just doesn't make any sense. And the other thing that makes no sense that drives me constantly insane, where exactly does this fit in the timeline? Because this is right after Fear State, but yet in Future State, Gotham, the the Future State titles, Jace Fox had just become the other Batman. So, how is this happening decades before that and he's already batman i oh my god this timeline makes zero sense none whatsoever and much like i was saying with teen titans academy where tim sheridan hasn't made me care about the characters i don't care about the fox family john ridley has portrayed it like this big soap opera i I keep comparing it to empire fox tv show that's what it feels like to me, Dynasty or Dallas or any of those old school sort of soap operatic stories. But I have no point of view character. I have no way in. Who who am I supposed to relate to here? I really don't care about any of these characters. I'm supposed to care about Lucius Fox, but he's completely unlikable because this is not the Lucius Fox that I ever have known or seen or cared about that always had Bruce Wayne's back. You know, the, the Lucius Fox that you know, even if we talk about the Morgan Freeman version of of Lucius Fox from the Batman, uh, from the uh, Christopher Nolan trilogy of Batman movies, you know, like he was somebody you you that you knew had Batman's back, that you, that had integrity, and and would go to bat for Batman, would never betray Bruce Wayne, and then he acts like this. I I, I and again, I know John Ridley's a super talented writer. Other History of the DC Universe, one of my favorite series of this year. It's going to win awards, and it it should. I don't care about these characters because John Ridley hasn't given me a reason to care about these characters, other than to tell me they're the Fox family, and they're they're they've now that Bruce Wayne has been disgraced, they're the first family of Gotham. He has all of Bruce Wayne's money. Well, so what? If he's going to act like a complete dick and, and completely illogic illogical which makes no sense because lucius fox is a very intelligent person you're not leaving many outs ridley like and and that's setting aside the continuity problems you add the continuity problems in and i'm just like oh my god and i don't and let me get this straight i 
or set the record straight. I don't blame, I don't put all the blame on this on John Ridley. I think DC set him up to fail. You know, he was supposed to start, it was supposed to be uh, Jace Fox taking over the regular Batman title, starting with issue 100. And then they saw the numbers, DC saw the numbers, some vice president at AT&T probably, because remember this, all these calls were made when AT&T was still in charge, saw the sales numbers on Batman and said, no, but let's have our cake and eat it too. Leave Tynan on Batman. We'll give Ridley his own title. And now it's all convoluted and doesn't make any sense. It makes no sense. The timeline doesn't make any sense. The story doesn't make any sense. Um, I, I feel bad for John Ridley. They did him dirty. Because uh, again, I know he's I know he's talented. This man's won an Academy Award for his writing. I know he's talented. Uh, I want, again, and it's a story I want to like more than I do, but between the incongruous nature of of uh, of Lucius Fox and the way he's acting, and maybe I could buy it again if, if the timeline, if this was twenty years down the road, if Lucius Fox had been fighting within the system against the corruption of the magistrate for decades, I could see him, you know, evolving or or knuckling under to to say, you know, in order to get along, I've got to go along. But I don't even know where this fits in, so. I, you know, you can you can either point the blame at editorial for screwing over Ridley with what they did, or you can point the blame at the lack of complete lack of continuity that makes zero sense. Like I challenge anyone at DC to explain, exp- just explain the continuity to me, please, for the love of God, explain the continuity to me. I, I want you to. I want I want to be wrong. I want to be wrong. I want this to make sense. Just please, anybody. <laughs> but unfortunately, it does it doesn't work for me. It, it really doesn't. It, it's a chore to read this because as as I'm trying to read it and and put all the pieces together, it doesn't make any sense. And and for me, that pulls me out of the story. Like, you know, I know I'm one of these continuity geeks and whatever, and I want things to line up and make sense. I've tried to let a lot of that go with what DC's done in recent years with Everything Counts and, you know, I don't necessarily have to think everything has to fit together just right. You know, at the end of the day, just give me a good story. Unfortunately, because it's so illogical, it pulls me out of the story. And again, along with the, the characterization of the Fox family, who I've not been given a reason to care about, it's not a good story. It, it's it's uh, it's just it's frustrating because again, I think this had a lot of potential. And it, initially, when I heard John Ridley was going to write a person of color one of the Fox sons as Batman, I was excited. This was not what I was excited for. This is a mess. So I don't know. Maybe you feel differently, Rocky. Am I wrong? Well, I'm not, I'm not quite as harsh on it as you are. I, I will say this, that ov- this issue at least sets up that, you know, the, the one side, the one detective here is, is being sent to New York she, because she's been basically kicked off the Gotham PD. So she's going to New York because we know that's where Jace is going to end up. Batman, Jace Batman is going to end up in New York City. And that's why his supporting cast is moving along with him. Uh, look, the Fox family is something that I agree with you. It, it's a little bit wonky because Fo- the, Lucius Fox was always in support of Batman. He was always in support of Batman. Then suddenly now he doesn't like this other Batman. And it happens to be his son. It just, I, it's hard to buy it. it. Now, he was tortured by Punchline. We have to remember that. So he did undergo some psychological torture by punchline during Fear State. That is mentioned in this issue. 
between that and the the violence and and his own wife is was was you know worked for the magistrate you know trying to create laws that outlawed masks themselves so but the whole fox family being essentially you know you know lucius fox and his wife both sort of being against masks and then their own i mean the one son is bat wing and the other one is the next batman i mean it just seems it just seems really forced and it uh, now having said that there is actually family drama here they have a daughter in the hospital i mean john ridley i agree with you john ridley in many ways he was given a very i won't say an impossible task but he was giving it was you know I won't say he was set up to fail per se, but he had a pretty big obstacle and maybe he was set up to fail. It just, Jace, we don't, having another Batman and it, boy, it it really does feel just like the black Batman. That's what this is. It's Batman, but he's black. I mean, that's, and it's just, it's just, that's the way it kind of feels. And that doesn't mean that he can't get his own agency and his own sort of, uh, independence but he's gonna have to do it in new york city because he can't have it in gotham city also even the seer is mentioned in this issue and we we know from the bat girls that we just reviewed that sears seer is this little purple-haired teenager for god's sakes which removes any gravitas from that from that villain so i don't know um i will say this i really love the i, I love the art here uh i, I like the the villain Simon Saint is in this issue too. Simon Saint ends up being killed. Uh, his daughter, uh, the the sister uh, Tiffany, ends up uh, or Tam Tammy wakes up from from her coma. So that happened. I'm not really sure how all this is going to move into him. Why is Jace? Why is this Batman going to ultimately be moving to New York City? I'm not. I'm not sure. We know in the Bat books a lot of crazy stuff's going to be happening going into Shadow War. Bruce Wayne's going to leave Gotham and we know that Chase is going to be going to New York City so I don't know what exactly is going to who's going to be protecting Gotham City I guess the rest of the Bat family or the Bat girls <laughs> Nightwings in Bloodhaven so we got we got Bat girls and uh, Oracle in uh, in uh, in Gotham but in any event I, I I'm hoping he finds some sort of uniqueness in, in New York City because he he He's he really is nothing but a sort of a uh, unfortunately his own he's kind of a copycat and a, kind of a sad imitation in Gotham, Gotham City. Sad to say. Yeah, but at the same time, when you think about it, the Fox family is sort of more. They're more Batman than the Wayne family, because like you said, one of them is Batman, the other Batman, new Batman, whatever you call it, and the and the other son's Nightwing or uh, that, that's uh, Batwing. True. Yeah. So. Yeah, the and and they have all the money, and the Fox family has all the money now. They've out Batman, the Wayne family. Yeah, well, that's, that's but the, the other thing right here about. is this this issue actually ends with with uh, Lucius Fox being asked to uh, to subsidize uh, Talos, a tactical assault light operator suit, which is basically another glorified magistrate program, which we just finished going through. So this is a rehash of an old of the plot line we just finished, and so like the like I don't even like this story. Like it's just this is uh, this is just a really poor. I'm not interested in where this is going. That's that's the sad part. I mean, this is really this is like Magistrate 2.0 at the end of this, and uh, it's just it's just not. 
it's not working for me. But in any event, um, we'll, we'll see where yeah, it goes, but whatever. Yeah, maybe it's working for, for others, but yeah, not so much for us. Uh, okay, because it's DC, we're not done with Batman yet. We have Robin and Batman number two, written by Jeff Lemire. Art and colors are by Dustin Wynn. Letters by Steve Wands. Uh, we really enjoyed the first issue. This is, um, I guess it's in continuity because it's not black label, although it easily could be. Uh, but anyway, it's a three-issue mini. Uh, larger size issues are like 38 pages, whatnot, 36 pages. So uh, what would you think of this one, Rock? I, I, I liked it. I liked it. It was actually, I really liked, uh, I, I really liked how they, uh, how Robin, I guess, young Dick Grayson ends up spending some time, spending some time with the, uh, with the Teen Titans in this issue. And I thought it was actually quite good. I, you know, he, he's, he's sort of bullied at school and he gets in trouble at school Alfred goes to the school, stands up for him, stands up for young Dick Grayson with the principal. I thought a lot of that was a little bit tropey. Uh, I thought, you know, I think that, uh, you know, Dick was, uh, young Dick Grayson was obviously, he was bullied, but he, he, he did, you know, he did get into a fight. Uh, Alfred is sticking up for him. So you, you get the sense that Alfred is sort of like the father figure because Bruce Wayne's never around. And uh, Alfred, you can tell, is very much on Dick's side, and uh, and because somebody has to, because let's face it, Bruce Wayne is never really around. Um, having said that, uh, what what I found the most very very what I found very funny was he ends up he he ends up going and he essentially infiltrates. Uh, well, he, he meets he. They go to the Justice League satellite, and they end up. He ends up meeting the the younger, I guess, the sidekicks of the Justice League, and uh, Wonder Girl, Kid Flash, and you know Aqualad, and it's uh, he ends up. Th- there's Chip Sardaski here. Uh, he does he does a good job. Jeff oh, pardon me, Jeff Lemire. Jeff Lemire. Sorry, mm. I was actually thinking of uh, <laughs> cheer drops there for a second. Uh, uh, Jeff Lemire, I, I love the dialogue here. I love how he portrays the intelligence of a of a young Dick Grayson. The way he interacts with the team, he actually he, he actually fits in quite well. He fits in so well. He has so much fun, and he ends up going back and he tells Alfred that he had such a good time. And then Batman asks him for a report, and then of course Batman tells him <laughs> to report, and it ends up that Batman actually uh, gave young Dick Grayson, uh, the, a job, um, gave him, uh, an assignment to basically psychologically evaluate each member, each sidekick member of the justice league. And that's what he did. And, you know, so Alfred is happy that young Dick Grayson had fun meeting friends, whereas Batman's more happy that he evaluated and psychologically analyzed his friends. So it's, it's like, it's like Dick Grayson has got two fathers. He's got like the Batman who's the analyzer. He's got Alfred who's the softer, more emotional side. And anyways, I quite liked it. The art was fantastic. I, with that particular, just, just that, that nice sort of like painted sort of soft tone style. This worked for me. It, it put a smile on my face. I enjoyed this much more than the first issue myself. 
I, I just thought it was more fun. This was more, this was more Dick Grayson being a young Dick Grayson where even though Alfred was upset with Batman for, for Batman making Dick sort of evaluate his friends, uh, Dick young, you know, young, young Dick Grayson, he, he knows he, he Dick is pro I, I always consider Dick Grayson to be uh, the most psychologically healthy and self-aware of the Bat family, even more so than Tim Drake. And, you know, Dick Grayson knows how to have fun and be analytical at the same time. And you could see the beginnings of that in, in this issue. And that's what Jeff Lemire scripts so well. So uh, I liked it. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I've never been a big fan of Dustin Wynn's watercolor style, mm -hmm. uh, but it does it does work here, and, and it often does. You know, I mean, there's a reason that Jeff Lemire works with Dustin. There's a reason that their their books have a certain feel and aesthetic. You know, when you talk about Ascender or Descender, uh, they're all the the watercolor painted style, like you mentioned, and it does it gives it a certain old fashioned and a certain charming feel to to the story. As much as I'm not a big fan of uh, of watercolor, so. That being said, what's so interesting in this issue that Lemire does, because there's all the charm and um, and sort of interesting aspect of the story as told from the perspective of, of Dick Grayson um, and that charming art, and that's all juxtaposed against sort of the cynical nature of who Batman is. And so just when you think this is sort of a, a feel-good type story and on Dick Grayson's birthday, you know, Bruce Wayne is, is really giving him a treat by taking him up to meet Superman and Wonder Woman and meet the Justice League and, and sort of interact with the other members uh, or other sidekicks, uh, you know, sort of a pre-Teen Titans. When he comes back home, the rug is pulled out from under Dick Grayson, who sort of knew it was coming, and us, the readers, who didn't know it was coming, that all along Dick was analyzing and it's just such a cynical sort of <laughs> Bruce Wayne thing to do. Right. Like, and Bruce even when, when I mean, Alfred's shocked, you know, Al Alfred is kind of our point of view. He's our voice in the story. You know, when, when Dick gives his report here, here's how I would take out, here's the weakness, you know, Donna Troy has no weaknesses except that she always sees the good in everybody. She would never see me coming. She would never suspect I would, you know, try to take her out. Um, you know, Wally West, he, he, his power levels are off the charts, but he has no confidence. I'd get into his head and, and he'd slow down and I'd strike. You know, it's it's Dick being completely analytical and unfeeling. And, and Alfred is our voice, you know, we because it was such an uplifting and sort of happy event for, for Dick to go and meet these other heroes and interact with sidekicks his own age. And Alfred's there to, to say to Bruce, how, how could you, man, on his birthday? And Batman's saying, He's a soldier, not a mascot. If he's going to be in the company of demigods, he needs to know how to defeat them. Just in case. It's such a Batman thing to do. Um, and it's important to remember who Dick is. Uh, you know, and, and the fact that now in the pages of, of Tom Taylor, and I, I love that this is coming out. This series from Lemire and Nguyen is coming out right now when we have the Tom Taylor, Bruno Redondo Nightwing series coming out because if anything, what this does with th this early days of Dick Grayson's interactions with Batman, his early days of being Robin, his earliest days, uh, reminding us of, of what he went through and, and sort of the, the crucible by fire and, and being subjected to this paranoia 
uh, from Batman in this cynical viewpoint. And then to see him still be heroic and positive and, and full of hope over in the Taylor Redondo series, it, it reinforces just what a special character Dick Grayson is. And, it, you know, again, when we get stories like this, it reminds me of why Dick Grayson is the favorite hero, DC hero of so many comic creators that have worked in the DC universe. Because despite all of this, despite the cynicism of Bruce Wayne, despite the paranoia, Dick still has that hopefulness in his, in his heart. So uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed the issue as much as it was sort of deflating at the end. Uh, it at least it felt real, you know, yes, that's exactly what Batman would do. It wasn't uh, this fun treat. It wasn't this birthday gift that was, you know, to feel good. He's Bruce uh, doesn't see Dick as a mascot. He's a soldier in the war against crime in the war against threats that uh, are justice league level that could destroy the, the, the city of Gotham or the whole planet or the whole universe or, or what have you. So yeah, fantastic work from, uh, from Lemire and Wynn. And, and just to be clear, it makes, you know, it makes Batman look, you know, Batman's a dick, he, you know, yeah, Dick, Dick exactly. Grayson, the, the name Dick might be associated with Grayson, but it's yeah. Batman. Who's the Dick here. I mean, really, without without Alfred, my God, can you imagine young Dick Grayson, what Dick Grayson will grow up to be? I mean, this is what Batman did was really horrible when you think about it. It was just plain awful. I mean, it was, it was not a good yeah, thing well, to, to make mean, a young you, kid you, do, but whatever. Yeah, I mean, you could, there's different ways of looking at it. You could say, well, he's, he's making sure that Dick can take care of himself, you know, so there's that aspect of it. But there's yeah. 100%, you know, as somebody who went to school, uh, to be a child psychologist. Yes. There's something to be said for letting a goddamn kid be a goddamn kid. You know? Yes. He's a soldier. Yes. He's a soldier, but guess what? So are a lot of kid soldiers, children, soldiers in Africa Yeah, with the genocides and the uh, tribal armies and whatnot. There's no, but, a reason, there's a reason that they commit suicide at such a high rate, you know, like oh, kids aren't meant to be soldiers. They're not meant to be subjected to that trauma. No, they're not. I mean, when I, when I first met you, Chase, the first thing I thought of, I, I never thought, I, the first thing I thought of wasn't the, how I could take you out. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, you know, it's like exactly. how many people do that? Like when you meet somebody for the first time, it's like, how could I take this person out if I absolutely had to? It's like, are you serious? <laughs> Yeah, that's so that's that's so like that's so like frat guy, right? Like you meet somebody for the first time and you like size them up at a party. Uh, like, yeah, I can take them. Come on, come on, Bruce. You don't got to be a frat guy. Yeah. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Wonder Woman number six, Homecoming Part Six from writer Joel Jones. Layla Deluc uh, Del Duca is the artist. Jordi Belair on colors. Pat Brosso on letters. So. Uh, Again, we have a different artist. Joel Jones did the first four issues. Last issue, we had Adriana Mello. Now we have a new artist on this one. Very much aping the style, though, of uh, of Jordy, or not Jordy Blair, sorry, of, uh, of uh, Joel Jones. So much so that I didn't realize it wasn't Joel Jones until I got to the credits. So I, I guess kudos to Layla for doing a good job of fooling me. Um but then I'm not the biggest fan of Joel Jones art anyway, because I I don't I'm not a fan of her line weights. Her line weights are really thick, and it, I feel like it makes the art feel sort of static. Um, but regardless uh, of that, the problem I have with this book is, oh my god, I don't have any idea what's going on anymore at this point. Uh, like who, like who is 
who is Yara Floor that that anybody cares this much? That that Hera cares? That that she's afraid Zeus will care? Like, yeah, I'm over it at this point. It's it lost its momentum when it was late, and and now we have the inconsistency in the art. I like what was the whole point of her having a Brazilian boyfriend, and now she's in love with with Hera's grandson? Like, yeah, Eros, yeah, I. I I don't know what the hell is going on in this book. It, it it hasn't been good enough that I was willing to go back and and read because I feel like I would need to go back and read from the beginning to try to make any sense of this. And it honestly just hasn't been good enough for me to do that. Um, I just feel like again missed opportunity. The story has potential. This character has potential, but we had like three months without an issue, and then it feels like we're getting one every two weeks now. But I don't, I don't even understand what the narrative has been. I mean, this this is issue six, right? So this is the last issue of of the the first volume in the trade. Like, I I don't even think this would make sense reading in a trade. I I, I just I'm lost. Yeah. I don't care about the characters. <laughs> it, it feels like such a waste. I mean, I wasn't yeah. as big of a fan of Yara Flora as you and and Trevor were yeah. to begin with, you know. But I was willing to give it a try, but my God, I just, I, I'm, I'm lost. I'm confused. Narrative doesn't make sense to me. The art's okay. The colors are okay. Uh, it feels a little drab. The colors have felt drab throughout the series. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm missing something, but I really, like when I saw Wonder Girl was on the, the list of digital preview copies, like honestly, I'm like, oh my God, I really don't want to have to read that. You know, it just feels like a chore to read because I'm lost. And, and maybe it's me. You know, maybe it's me. But, uh, yeah, I did not enjoy this. Well, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, look, I this is supposed to uh, th- this is I think this is uh, I agree with you. This is this is sad. This is a uh, very, very disappointing. This is not going to read any better as a trade. This is part six. This is issue six. This is not. Uh, having reread the previous uh, five issues, it doesn't read any better. It it it's actually just equally as confounding as when you read it from beginning all all six issues in a row. Uh, it's it's not very well put together, quite frankly. It's it's a mess. Wonder Girl, I don't know Yara Flora. This issue, I mean, she's she's escaping Olympus because she left. She, you know, air. I mean, the crazy thing is, is that she she gains the power. She suddenly becomes. She has the power to be Wonder Girl. She's this. Uh, she's so. She's a. She has all this power that she scares the hell out of the the three the other three tribes of Amazons. So there's the Brazilian tribe, the Equisita. There's the uh, Themyscarans by Queen uh, Nubia, who sends Cassie and Artemis a- or Cassie Sandsmark after her. And then we got the Ban of Magdal Amazons send they send Artemis after her. Cassie and Artemis meet up with uh, Yara Flor. And then just have a conversation with her. They don't even try to stop her. They don't even try to to bring her in because she's supposed to be this potential threat to the other Amazons. Uh, Helen uh, or Hera, pardon me, the, the the wife of Zeus, thinks that she's a threat. Hera apparently uses Eros, her son Eros. Eros accidentally pricked himself with his arrow and fell in love with Yara. He then shot the arrow into Yara, and so she fell in love with Eros. 
but Yara was also still in love with Zhao, her bus driver from Brazil, who's like a stage five clinger who followed her around, who followed her on the plane. And she's in Olympus. She trains to be, she is trained by the gods of Olympus only then to realize that while she doesn't want to drink the liquid of ambrosia and forever be condemned to stay on Olympus. So she escapes Olympus, but she's being chased. And this is, she opens up where she runs away from Olympus and somehow ends up in Tartarus, which is basically the Olympic, basically a Greek version of hell where she, and this issue, she nonsensically, there's this giant man beast. I don't even know. He's not given a name who, squishes these three I don't even know what these three creatures are that nonsensically attack Yara for reasons which aren't explained and there's this man beast then who tries to attack Yara we don't know how he incapacitates her I guess he steps on her <laughs> and then she finds herself caged after which Eros uh, Eros talks to her and asks her why did you refuse Hera well he already knows why she refused Hera I don't even know why she bother going to Olympus. She accuses Eros of, of manipulating her where, where obviously he was, she was shot with the arrow. And so she has, doesn't she know how this works? I mean, I, in, meanwhile, all this, all, all, all this nonsense. I mean, she, she ends up getting attacked by this creature and she escapes a, she gets reunited with her horse, Jerry, the flying horse isn't dead. <laughs> How did, <laughs> this is so bad. Jerry, the flying horse is still alive. Stupid name for a horse, a flying horse. Why don't they just call it Pegasus? It's, 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 it's a cool name. Why call it Jerry? Stupid name for a horse, a flying horse. But anyways, the, the horse isn't dead. And then she reunites with the horse, flies off. Somehow she knows how to get from Tataris back to Olympus. I don't even know, uh, Joel Jones also, I don't think Joel Jones knows that Tataris is not located on Olympus. They're in two different, they're, they're not, Olympus is not the same as Tataris. There's a, there's, there's actually a, there's actually a bit of dialogue that suggests that Tataris and Olympus are on the same place. In any event, it's a, it's a mess. Meanwhile, the Equisita, the Brazilian tribe that Yara Flor is from, they want to attack Olympus because somehow they know that Yara is there. Uh, Hera then suddenly decides to tell Eros to kill Yara for reasons which are never explained. <laughs> Why do they want to kill Yara? Why is she a threat? This is never explained at all. There's actually a scene here where, where Donna, Troy, and Cassie are talking to each other and they're smiling. And Cassie actually says to Donna Troy, am I crazy to be excited about what all this could mean if everything works out? And they're actually about to declare war and attack Olympus. And, and Cassie's excited about this? Her father is Zeus. Cassie's father is Zeus. What is she so excited about? War? They're headed for war. Why are they all smiling? Why is Donna Troy and Cassie smiling? They're going to attack Olympus. I mean, does, did Donna Troy know she was going to attack Olympus when she was when she met the Equisita tribe? Is that what Cassie was told by Queen Nubia? None of this makes any sense. This is this is just absolute total nonsense. This is total chaos. We're supposed to be heading into trial of the Amazons, and now we got the Amazons attacking Olympus. I, 
how is this related to the to the to the trial of the Amazons and to the the disagreement between if whatever that disagreement might be between the Themyscarans, the Bannermagdal tribe, and the Equisita Amazons? Why aren't we getting more of this? This the sad part is is that when I read the article I'm on trial of the Amazons, if if it's advertised, apparently every every two weeks. All the writers of the of of wonder of the title Joel Jones, Be- Becky Cloonan, Michael W. Conrad, Vidal, and Stephanie Williams meet every two weeks to discuss. They're they're coordinating this trial of the Amazons. I wish I could see some evidence, a little bit more evidence of coordination or a convergence of these storylines. Okay, I'm not seeing a lot. I'm seeing a little bit in the pages of Wonder Woman, which we'll get to on the, pre- but I'm very disappointed in in this this Wonder Girl series is. Not, uh, it's not up to task at all. I'm not even sure what's going on. I'm trying to piece it together, but this is a massive disappointment, a huge disappointment. This is something that will be rewritten. This is an artistic failure as well. I don't like the art. Uh, uh, I don't, I don't like the art. I don't like the coloring. I, I, I agree with you on that. This is just a fail failure all around. Unfortunately, as a narrative, I think that this needs to be redone. Uh, I, I really do. This is something where I can see within five years this origin for Wonder Girl being completely redone because they should they should go back to formula. What a missed opportunity to get people on board for this character. This is not. Uh, again, I hate to say it, but this this isn't good enough. This is not good enough for uh, what what is a brand new Wonder Woman. This is a massive disappointment. I look back at Artemis when Artemis was introduced. We had an awesome six-issue Artemis miniseries drawn by Ed, you know, gorgeous or with gorgeous art. I mean, and this and and this here is, I mean, it's the art is ugh, serviceable, but the story-wise, this is an abject disappointment. I'm just, I'm gonna stop talking now because I I don't want to, uh, you know, let's just say that. Uh, um, I think Wonder Girl fans deserve better, and we'll leave it at that. Hopefully, the trial of the Amazons will retell the story of Wonder Girl in a way that actually makes sense. Yeah, I mean, that's the biggest... I shouldn't have to work so hard to try to understand what the hell's going on. Yeah. You know? It's it's tough. And again, I, this is why you can't have late comics. And, I, you know, I'm not pointing the finger at anybody. It could have been paper shortage. could have been shipping delays. But... It is telling that Joelle Jones hasn't been the artist on the last three issues. Yeah. So if you know that she's slow, then don't release the book until she's got, you know, X amount of issues in the can. So anyway, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm not that disappointed because I don't really care that much about the character anyway. Um, But I agree with you. Like this was a chance to bring on new readers with a new version of Yara Florida. The, the only thing I'll say, this is such a backhanded compliment. In a way, I'm kind of glad the Wonder Girl Yara Florida TV series got canceled because if that had brought readers, you know, if that had brought people that watched the show, oh, I want to read about Wonder Girl in the comics and they pick this up, they may have never bothered to pick up another comic ever again. And I know <laughs> yeah. that sounds, I know that sounds kind of harsh, but yeah, yeah. It, this is just so hard. I mean, I've been reading comics for over 40 years and I can't understand it. How is somebody who picks this up, picks this series up as their first comic ever? How are they going to understand? If if I can't understand it with my knowledge of DC, how is somebody reading this as a first time comic going to understand it? So yeah. yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit rough. Uh, okay. 
let's move on to something uh, a little more positive here. Teen Titans, or Titans, rather, United number four. Incoming from writer Kevin Scott, Jose Luis on pencils, Jonas Trinidad on inks, Rex Locus on colors. We mentioned it previously when we talked about Teen Titans Academy. I don't know. For me, this feels like classic Titans, and the art's fantastic. Oh. I loved it. What do you think, Rocky? Oh, I, I, I love this. This this is great. Kevin Scott, man, he's he's hitting it out of the park. This is just classic, classic Titans, the Titans, the Teen Titans that I know and love. And, well... Actually, a mixture of what I know and love and also a mixture of, you know, they obviously throw some Connor in there and they throw some Jason Todd. And so it's it's a little, it's obviously a little mix of the the animated and, and the, the classic Teen Titans uh, from Perez and Wolfman days and and just, you know, gorgeous, gorgeous covers. I mean, a gorgeous Starfire here. I mean, kudos to the uh, uh, artist, uh, Jose uh, Luis, a uh, fantastic uh, Jonas Trinidad on the inks. Uh, Rex Locus on the colors. Th this is absolutely gorgeous. This is, this is exactly, uh, this is like, this is Starfire at her all time best looking, like just wow. And, um, yeah. And, and black, black fires, of course, she's, she's torturing, she's torturing, uh, Connor in, in her starship. And she's, it's Blackfire Who's the one who's behind all these, all these humans developing metahuman abilities all over the planet. So the Titans have to basically, they're broken up and they have to go all, all the way around the planet to try to, to, to try to stop all these humans from going basically crazy and, and losing control of their Titan like powers. And just the, uh, the machinations of Blackfire, the way she's toying with, uh, of, 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 uh, of Connor is great. Uh, Lady Vic, Lady Vic ends up, we end up, uh, discovering that Lady Vic is actually hired, uh, was hired by this Mr. Spock character to essentially steal, to, um, uh, uh, she was, uh, Lady Vic was hired by, to, to take out the, to kill the scientist that was responsible for creating the metahumans, uh, to creating the gene that, or creating the, the wave that creates metahumans and it's Nightwing himself who creates a, a counter wave to sort of shut down the, 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 the effect that's creating all these various humans from getting powers. But Blackfire interferes with that. Meanwhile, the, the confrontation between Starfire and Lady Vic is great. Lady Vic is so sexy. Starfire is sexy. When you got two, the Pyrian fanboy in me loves this. We got uh, Lady Vic and Starfire both looking fantastic. Good grief, it, it looks really good. I, I love the fight scenes here. I love, I love. This is this is very very well done, and I mean uh, Jose Luis. I mean his art is just fantastic, like absolutely fantastic. I I just wow, you know you know actually man, it, it's amazing the difference that that art can make because this. In terms of story-wise, I mean, so much, the art's so fantastic, and and the plot moves, we get, you know, Blackfire ends up attacking attacking the Titans, uh, she's responsible for, for all these meta, all these humans develop, developing meta-human abilities, across the globe, all these people are getting powers, and meanwhile, we got great team, you know, great team-ups as, as the Titans spread out to try to deal with all all the all that's going on around the globe and just 
this is just feel good comics, man. This is just, this is a must read, a must read. If you're a Titans fan, it's a must buy for me. I, I just, you know, again, I I said, I talked before about a shit eating grin on my face. This, this is a visually, this is a beautiful spectacle. Uh, sexy women, gorgeous women, great action. I mean, my God, Blackfire, Starfire, and Lady Vic at their finest. I'm telling you, this is great stuff. Great cliffhanger stuff. Looks like there's an explosion. Is Starfire dead? Is Lady Vic dead? Probably not, but it's, you know, it's well done. Blackfire, uh, you know, great double-page spread with Nightwing on his motorcycle as as Blackfire's forces attack. This is This is really... Just very well done. And this is exactly the type of, um, this reminds me so much, just a wonderful callback to the classic Titan days for me and a little bit of the animated, uh, of, of the animated series as well, as well as the, uh, some, a modern day take with Jason Todd being included and, uh, Connor as well. Very well done. And Donna Troy kicking ass. And then to top it off at the end, we got this, a new version of, of a, a Blackfire controlled Connor looking kick ass in a brand new outfit, a brand new suit. <laughs> this is, I'm loving this. I, I don't know. I, I just sat back and I enjoyed this. This is, uh, this is easily, well, well, my top two for, for the week. Uh, one of my, one of my favorites for the week. What do you feel about it? Yeah, I loved it. Uh, I'm right there with you. Like I got such a, a Superboy Prime vibe from that image that we have. If you're watching us on YouTube, that image of of the the Connell or Connor Kent, whichever you prefer. Uh, but you know, Blackfire's controlling him, and he's he's got a little bit of an armor uh, on, and it, it just felt like very Superboy Prime, who's one of my favorite DC characters. Yeah, I I love it. it, it and I give a lot of credit to the art as well. I mean, Jose Luis is, this is, it's spectacle. It's big, giant explosions. It's action. It's kinetic. Uh, it's, it's beautiful. And I also give a lot of credit to Rex Locus, the color artist who does an incredible job with pretty primary colors, which, you know, as I always say, you get into those primary colors and it, it makes it feel more kind of classic, super heroic uh, comics. Now, it doesn't say this again. It doesn't say it's black label. It doesn't say it's necessarily out of continuity. But here's the thing: it could be out of continuity, but it doesn't have to be. There's no reference to other stuff. This just is what it is. Like if somebody wanted to read a DC comic right now, I would be hard pressed not to say somebody who's unfamiliar with DC comics. I would be hard pressed not to say, read this. Right? Like. Hey, maybe I'd give them Nice House on the Lake if they were into horror or, or something more sophisticated. But if they wanted to read superhero stuff, man, I, I right now off the top of my head, I can't think of something more appropriate to give somebody where they don't need to know anything. They don't need to know anything about Future State yep, or what Joshua Williamson's doing in Infinite Frontier or what's going on in the Sheridan verse or what just happened in Fear State. They don't have to know any of that stuff. They can just pick this up and read it for what it is. It's the Teen Titans. They're battling against Blackfire. They're battling against Lady Vic. The art is gorgeous and fantastic. This is a perfect example of what can be done with a great narrative and great art. Now, is this the most like sophisticated, complicated, interpersonal stories uh, of the Teen Titans 
for the Titans? No, it's not. You know, it, it doesn't even rise to the level of the interaction that we had back in the classic Wolfman Perez days. Um, but it doesn't need to be. It's not trying to be that. Kevin Scott is just trying to give us this rip-roaring, action-filled story uh, about the Teen Titans. And there there are some interactions and there are some kind of in-jokes. And, and that's kind of, it's a very surface level in terms of interaction between characters. But doesn't mean they can't couldn't build on it, you know, in the next story arc or even in the next issue. So uh, give a lot of credit to Kevin Scott. Give a lot of credit to Jose Luis. This creative team is clearly gelling. Um, and honestly, I, I hope this continues. I mean, it's a, I know it's a f- seven issue mini, but I, I hope that they get another volume. I agree. And I, I, and I, and I, and I actually would want, I want to see that. I mean, Kevin Scott has shown a good handle of pacing and of what's possible in, in the pages of a comic mm. in terms of action. I trust him enough based on the first four issues mm. that he could probably Give us an, uh, a second volume of Titans United where it is more about the personal interactions. You know, maybe instead of a, a big over-the-top villain like Blackfire, you give us somebody who's a little more of a mystery villain or a little more muted or a little more behind the scenes yeah. or is uh, a villain that's a little more insidious where the, the Titans are worried about, you know, betrayal within the ranks, you know, sort of like a a Judas contract sort of thing yeah. where you, we could get a little more characterization yeah. and uh, a little more dynamic layering between the, the characters. He knows these I, characters. He knows these characters yeah, very exactly. well. Yeah. yeah. He clearly loves these characters. He clearly yes. uh, knows, the, you know, the classic eras of them because he plays off that, especially when it comes to uh, the relationships between uh, or the interactions between like night fire, uh, Nightwing and uh, Starfire. Or uh, Beast Boy and basically anybody, how he's kind of the butt of the <laughs> of the jokes, um, and and yeah, the fact that he can add in uh, Red Hood, who wasn't you know originally part of that classic era with Wolfman and Perez, uh, yeah, th- this is a fantastic fantastic story. So yeah, it's up there as well. I'm I'm curious what your other book that might rival this will be, but uh, I guess we'll find out as we move along. Uh, okay, let's speaking of moving along, let's. Go ahead and do that now with Wonder Woman number 782. Uh, as we mentioned earlier when we talked about Batgirls, Michael W. Conrad and Becky Cloonan are the writers on this. Marcio Takara is the artist. Tamra Bonvillan does the colors. Pat Broso on letters. Wasn't a big fan of the art. I didn't think it was as clean as I've seen Takara's art before, but uh, it was okay. Uh, I feel like Bonvillan's colors very much suited the, the line work, so I didn't have a problem there. Um I, you know, it's, it's so tough because what are we like 11 issues into the, the Clunan Conrad run? Yeah. I want it to be good. I want to like it, but I still, I still feel like I don't have an identity for who their Wonder Woman is. Uh, There's so much going on in their story that, pulls the focus away from Diana in a way that I still don't feel like I know who Wonder Woman is to them, who Diana Prince is to them. Now, whether it was jumping from realm to realm to realm, you know, mythological realm to mythological realm, whether it's what's Diana's relationship with Etta Candy right now, what's her relationship with Steve Trevor, what's her relationship with Deadman, 
who are these clones? Who, what's Dr. Psycho up to? There's, it, it feels so busy. And I, I kind of feel like the issue we got a couple of issues ago, I think it was 780 when Diana was, uh, went back to Themyscira and got a chance to spend time with her mother. That was the chance. Like, show us who Diana is to you. But we didn't even get it in that issue. So I'm sort of struggling with tone uh, of, of what this is supposed to be. I don't, I don't feel like I know who Wonder Woman is to them. And so it, it's, I, I have no touchstone. I have no point of view. I have no way, no relatable way into the story. Um, and, and they have some interesting ideas. And I love that they're, they seem to want to build a, a rogues gallery for Wonder Woman, which I think she sorely needs. Um, so there's there's potential here, but I don't know. It's like they're missing that they're missing that one issue that brings it all together for me. Where I say yes, okay, now I know who Wonder Woman is to you as the writer. So now I can find my way into the story because right now I just feel like it's sort of going by the numbers, and I'm just reading it to read it, and there's no you know, again, to, to go back to, uh, I am Batman. Why, like, why do I care? Why do I care about this version of Diana? There's nothing there for me to grab onto yet. Um, and, and it just feels like 11 issues in, I should know that by now. Um, yeah. even if it's, even if it's that Diana doesn't know who she is and she's searching for her identity, having come back from, from the dead, basically. And if that's what it is, then then great. But it, for me at least, I haven't sensed that, and and that's where I, that's where the disconnect is. So again, it's another one of these DC books. I want to like it more than I do, but and there are some cool ideas, but it's just not quite there for me. So I don't know. Uh, what do you think, Rocky? I, yeah, I I agree. I. <clears throat> I would rather have Wonder Woman still trying to find her way back to to Earth and have her explore the multiverse than what we're getting here. Wonder as much Woman, as we thought that was dragged out, you'd rather well, go no, back no, to no, that? No, I know. I, I agree with you. It was dragged out, but at least at least we can explore the multiverse and have a little bit of fun and go to, go to the various Earths and do something else. This, with these cheap copies, and, and like, like you said, I mean, all these disparate plot points they don't seem connected and and i really actually don't even think they're probably going to be connected at the end but they really don't seem connected now and not in a good way uh, i'm not i'm just sort of sh- i'm shaking my head this dr psycho you know cisco or whatever dr psycho she i don't like the fact that you know she she's wonder woman wonder woman so much of this comic is her having a conversation with dead man <laughs> it, it, like pages of just a conversation. I mean, good God, just talking heads and talking heads. A conversation talking about how dead, uh, how Doctor Psycho is, is preaching his poisonous ideology. What ideology is that, Wonder Woman? We haven't been told what this poisonous ideology is. Can I assume it's misogyny of some kind? Probably, but it's not. It, it's not really detailed. But it's a poisonous ideology. Okay cliche whatever so then all right then they're 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 actually flying to iceland because remember 
Wonder Woman really, really, it's a priority to Wonder Woman. Having finally got back to Earth, her first priority isn't to, you know, look for the lurking threat that's uh, that's going to destroy the, the multiverse, i.e. Darkseid or some other threat. No, no, her, her number one priority is the sword that the guy she was screwing in, in all when she was trying to get back to Earth, Siegfried, he gave her a sword. She'd wants she wants to return the sword, Siegfried's sword, to Siegfried's gra- gravestone, to his gravesite. So that's what they do in this issue. They go all the way to Iceland uh, with Dead Man. They they return the sword. They return the sword to this to, to, to this uh, and in Sweden in Valsgard Gervalt. Sweden, they return the sword, and apparently all that's hinted at is, you know, Dead Man tells Wonder Woman that Siegfried died a violent death, protecting innocence and fighting for freedom. Now, why would what would be the point of wasting an entire issue telling us this? I'm thinking, if I'm guessing, could it be that sometime in the past, when Siegfried died thousands of years ago, is Siegfried's death related to Amazonian history? Did he die in defense of some Amazonian ideal that might lead in a trial of the Amazons? I'm trying to give Becky Clooner and Michael W. Connor the benefit of the doubt here that this is actually relevant to the story that we're going to be getting. Why Why is this plot point so important that you've wasted two issues on returning a sword to a dead lover that's been dead for thousands of years, that Wonder Woman's instinct, her wisdom of Athena made her feel that she needed to return the sword? Maybe that's it. Meanwhile, we have this, you know, image maker, this 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 new villainous tease called Image Maker on the last page, and more clones of Wonder Woman show up that attack the plane they were on. And this this come to image maker, master of mirror world. What does this have to do? I mean, if you're if you're gonna be setting up trial of the Amazons, why not do that? I'm I'm not sure who this image maker is, but I, I don't really find it all that interesting. But I guess I guess we'll see where it's gonna take us. Dr. Psycho, I really don't care about Dr. Psycho. I don't care what he's doing or who he's summoning. It doesn't I'm just not interested in that. I mean like you said, the tone of this is way off. It's even Steve Trevor, she's I mean, we don't even the Everything is off about this. It's just, I find it very unsatisfying. By far the great, the best, the best of this comic was the backup. Part two, What Lies Beneath, Trial of the Amazons. This was much better because we get Queen Atalanta returning to the Banna McDowell tribe. Uh, Queen Atalanta is is a joint queen, both her and Queen Faruka II, they're they're both of them are queen. They're like joint monarchs of the Banner McDowell tribe. Queen Atalanta uh, was last seen in Steve Orlando's Wonder Woman run. And she basically uh, helped defeat uh, sort of like a shadow king. Long story. But in any event, Queen Atalanta has returned. And she's got some concerns. It's clear that Queen Atalanta and Queen Faruka II have, have perhaps, it's hinted that they maybe disagree or have some disagreement as to how to recruit Amazons into the Banna McDowell tribe. Queen Atalanta expresses concerns that the 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 human the human females that tried that they tried to recruit, some of them ended up being criminals in the in, in part one, and they ended up being banished and not being accepted into the tribe. And Queen Faruka says something very interesting here. And this is going to hint at what uh, the dissension between the Amazons, I believe, leading into trial of the Amazons. 
Queen Faruka says, women are no less dangerous than men. And we learned that just by being, and, and we learned that just being one did not equal worthiness. A woman must prove her mettle to the sisterhood. In other words, the Banner McDowell tribe do not accept just any women. You got to prove yourself. You have to be worthy. Women are just as flawed as men. I like that idea. We're seeing elements of that even in, in a completely different story in Historia by Kelly Sue DeConnick. But that's unrelated. But I like we're, we're, we're getting different ideas here. We're getting the we're getting hints of what the Themyscira Amazons believe. And in this case, the Banner McDowell tribe who are in they're located in the desert. So where Themyscira is a paradise, uh, the Banner McDowell tribe that Queen Atlanta is at and Queen Faruka. It, it's actually in the desert. Like think of Iraq, modern day Iraq. That's where the Banner McDowell tribe is. And they're jealous. They're kind of pissed off that they, Amazon's, you know, Wonder Woman, uh, you know, Queen Queen Nubia gets this beautiful island paradise and they're stuck on an, on a desert, you know, on a, on a, on a shit desert in, in, in basically modern day Iraq. And of course they don't even have it as good as Equisita, the Brazilian Amazons. And so you can kind of see that, you know, the, in the backup here, they're attacked by a beast that escaped from Doom's doorway. And Doom's doorway is located on Themyscira. So they're wondering what the hell is going on. Uh, maybe they're suspecting that the Themyscira and Amazons sent a beast to attack them. Meanwhile, the Equisita are Amazons in the pages of Wonder Girl are attacking Mount Olympus because that's where they think uh, Yara Flor is being held captive by by Hera. So you can kind of see where all this is going. We know that there is this this other uh, this other tr new tribe that are claiming the land of Themyscira. We saw that in the Wonder Woman annual reviewed last week. So I I really am enjoying this lead up to Trial of the Amazons. I just wish that the story in Wonder Girl. I wish that the story in the main story of Wonder Woman that Becky Clooney and Michael W. Conrad were telling, we're leading into it as well. But it's it doesn't seem to be happening. But at least, thank God, we got this back up here that's better. And I do like, I like Nubia and the Amazons. I do like what Vita Ayala and Stephanie Williams are doing in that series. That's much better handled and much better written. And that is the best uh, Amazon written title uh, so far. So... So, yeah, I, I don't like the Wonder Woman story, uh, the main story, but I love the backup. Yeah, I, I agree. The, the At least one of them feels like it's heading somewhere. Yeah. You know, the other one – and and one thing I, I didn't mention, and I don't think you mentioned it either. We, we both mentioned Steve Trevor. Um, but, you know, give – Clunan and Conrad credit. Okay, Wonder Woman comes back to life. She's going to reach out to Steve Trevor. She's there's got to be something with that relationship. But I either they aren't ready to tell us the story of that relationship, or they don't know what they're going to do with it. So what do they choose to do? Well, again, I give them credit for at least acknowledging, but they they have them call each other on cell phones, and then it's always a poor signal. It's always a poor connection, and they can never actually have a live conversation with each other like that that sort of sums up their run so far to this point though <laughs> it's a bad connection on the phone so yeah, yeah again i i echo what rocky says um about the backup at least that feels like it's leading into something 
And hopefully the trial of the Amazons is going to be something that, that's really good. And despite the fact that uh, Wonder Woman Historia is black label and doesn't technically fit into this universe, I love the fact, like Rocky said, about addressing the fact that just because you're a woman <laughs> doesn't automatically mean that you're good, um, which is so interesting in context of what we just got last week with Wonder Woman Historia. So, yeah. uh, all right, let's move on. Next book we're going to talk about is The Joker, number 10. This is from Matthew Rosenberg and James Tynan, Francisco Francovia on art and colors, Tam, uh, Tom Napolitano on letters. This is another one of those issues that's complete flashback with the Franco, uh, Francisco Francovia art, uh, flashing back to the relationship between James Gordon and the Joker. So uh, what'd you think of this one, Rocky? I, I wish it wasn't, uh, I wish, I wish it was less of a flashback here. I've, I am, I'm starting to, I was cutting uh Tinny in a lot of slack uh, in terms of always having these sort of, always having uh, a lot of focus on Jim Gordon here. And I, I, I don't mind it because it, it's a, this is, it is a really great Jim Gordon story and, and it is, the Joker does play a significant, does play a role in it, but he, he you know, it's, it, this is definitely, I'm starting to come around to the, the criticism that this is, um, you know, this, this, this should be, this should be more of a Joker story. I mean, this, this focus is, it's starting to, it, this shouldn't, I, I'm starting to almost not, cha I haven't changed my mind yet. I, I like the story, but I, I wish there was more, more Joker here. Um, now th this issue, strangely enough, it's, it's not just Jim, Jim Gordon, who's obsessed with the Joker. It's James Gordon Jr. It's Jim Gordon's son is obsessed with the Joker. Uh, his, um, basically, uh, the flashback is James Gordon's ex-wife, uh, whose name is Barbara, <laughs> basically drops off their son saying you got to you got to take care of James Jr because I can't control him anymore uh uh James uh, my, my my new husband is terrified of our of our son so you got to take him so he takes he takes his son in and he discovers that his own son is obsessed with the joker and he finds his he finds his son going through his joker files because Jim Gordon you know, foolishly brings his police files home, and that includes the Joker, and his own son brings 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 uh, all this home. And um, what is what's what's actually very interesting here is this is actually a great Batman story. That you know, when we got when we got that story about when the we, there was that six issue series of the Batman Who Laughs, where James Gordon Jr. And James Gordon took on the Batman who laughs, and James, the Batman who laughs was using Jim Gordon Jr. against Jim Gordon, and that all that played out. That was kind of a good series. It was one of the, I think, it was one of the better written stories involving the Batman who laughs. But the but the history of James Gordon Jr. This is a really good origin for him, and this is very well done. And and the way that the way that Batman, because he Batman cares for Jim Gordon, Commissioner Gordon. He basically, Batman figures out that young James Gordon is actually screwed up. <laughs> he needs some therapy, and rather than basically reporting him and 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 letting the police find evidence that would point to James Gordon's son, he basically gives the evidence to uh, 
uh, Commissioner, you know, to Gordon and saying, look, your son needs help. Uh, get him help. Get him help. And that's kind of how, that's kind of, kind of where, where the, th where things are left. And it's, it, it really shows just how tight the relationship is between, between Batman and James Gordon, James Gordon, because, uh, despite the fact that, uh, that James is is a pretty screwed up young man here. The the reality is that Batman doesn't think all hope is lost, and uh, it's it's clear that uh, uh, even with a, a young Renee Montoya, I mean, a lot of great callbacks here uh, to to a young. To I guess I keep calling a Commissioner Gordon. I guess this would be Captain Gordon in his younger days, but it's uh, it, it's obvious that young young Jim. James Gordon sort of sets up this guy, you know, he dresses up, he puts makeup on young James Gordon Jr. Steals Barbara, steals his sister's makeup and puts a, a Joker lipstick on his face. And he basically sets up this other guy to, as if he's to make himself look like the victim. And it's uh Batman, of course, sees through it and he tells Gordon about it. And, you know, this, this particular issue is called broken home, broken heart. And it really does. It lays the foundation of it. It drives home the fact as to why it wasn't just Barbara Gordon, whose life was impacted by the Joker, but James Gordon Jr. is obsessed with the Joker. So it's Tinian wrote this chapter. I know to reinforce the fact that this is another reason why Commissioner Gordon, former Commissioner Gordon, is a, it, hates the Joker. The Joker really is uh, a central part of the dysfunction that exists in Commissioner, former Commissioner Gordon's life. Between what he did with Barbara Gordon by crippling her, making her oracle, and by contributing to the psychopathy of his son, James Jr. And in that respect, it works. Where it doesn't work is that it doesn't really move the narrative forward with respect to the the actual central story involving the modern day Joker coming out of uh, Arkham Asylum Day A Day. But in any event, uh, what do you think of it, Jace? I have mixed feelings about this one. Um, you know, I I feel like each of these Francesco Francavilla interludes that we have where Tynan is joined by Matthew Rosenberg. They're, they're flashbacks. I appreciate that Frank Avia comes in and his art is very different. He, he does his own colors very different. They'll, they'll stand out in, in, in a collected edition, but I feel like each time we've had them, they've been less impactful. Like the first one was the one that I think stood out. And the next one was, yeah, okay. You're giving the regular artist a break, I guess. Uh, you're giving us more context. But it each subsequent interlude has felt like the context is less and less needed. And, and this felt like it wasn't needed at all. Like, at this point, who that reads Batman hasn't read Killing Joke? You know? So what, what does this really add? I feel like we're already completely in with the angst and the, the sort of turmoil that Jim Gordon feels. We, we certainly 
got it thrown right in our face a couple of issues ago when uh, Gordon was talking to, to Bane's clone daughter, Vengeance. And, and, you know, Gordon, in his own words, it was a fantastic line from Tynan um, where Gordon was saying he, he realized he was feeling guilty. He was, he was basically saying, I don't have the guts to go and kill the Joker myself. You're my gun and I'm pointing you at, at the Joker. Uh, so we have everything we need to know. Like you're no longer adding context when you're doing these Frank Avia issues, you're sort of beating a dead horse. And uh, I really did not care for the, the pinks and oranges and yellows of the coloring. I, I didn't understand it. That bright coloring that Frank Avia gives us, I didn't get it at all. Like if you're trying to, to show us that, okay, this was the beginning of the end for James Jr. and how he started down the path of becoming a serial killer, mental health issues, blah, 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 and, and how that affected Jim Gordon. Okay, I guess there's some worth there, but why are you giving me pink backgrounds and orange and yellow? Why are you giving me these bright colors? Like, it didn't make any sense. So, you know, I've said from the beginning that I, as much as Frank Avia is a, a fantastic artist, I never felt like he was the right choice for, for this joker series and 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 this was the worst yet in terms of artwork like i just didn't understand the the choice the color choices that he made so for me unfortunately i i just didn't care for this issue um i you know yeah and this this i think this is probably the uh the one issue where i don't even think there was a single page with the joker on it other than the cover i mean that this was a you know this is what i mean like i you and i have been fairly staunch defenders of this series in terms of the, despite the fact that it doesn't have a lot of, it has more commissioner Gordon than the Joker. We've been very forgiving of that because the, the quality of the narrative I think has been generally pretty high, but I will admit that it's starting to wear thin a little bit. So Tinian is sort of pushing the boundaries here of, you know, <laughs> you know, yeah, let's get back into the like, Joker narrative here. Yeah. It didn't even, that's my point. It didn't even feel like I've loved the fact that the, the whole Joker title has been a really a Jim Gordon title. This wasn't even a good Jim Gordon story. It just, it just wasn't, the narrative wasn't strong. And I, I didn't, I, you know, as much as it's, you know, the visual storytelling is as strong as Frank Avia ever does. The color work for me really brought it down. So yeah, it yeah. Didn't, wasn't a fan. Um, if you're, if you're not a fan of the, uh, the Frank Avia issues, you could skip this completely. So, um, and the the backup we've we've talked about how the punchline backup has run far 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 too long. Nothing happens in the backup here. Um, you know Kelly's there. Supposedly she's a witness. She knew punchline when punchline was in high school. Supposedly she's going to have some kind of damning testimony at punchline's uh, trial. And they're they're prepping her, um, and that's basically it. Uh, felt like a throwaway in in terms of of the backup. So. Yeah. Yeah. Anything there, Rocky? Yeah. This was a, unfortunately, it just sort of confirms the failure of the punchline uh, potential and the failure of this backup. This has been a, uh, the the punchline backup story has just been, has just not been very good. Uh, I just, I'm not buying it. It it just, it it never worked. And I think the, the, the potential for punchline to be like a a social media powerhouse, a, a social, you know, wielding her, 
uh, evil or manipulative influence on social media. It it failed. It it, it didn't work. Um, and frankly, why isn't punchline in this story more? I mean, I mean, if when you think about it, this entire punchline backup, we learned almost nothing about punchline. We we didn't learn anything about punchline. We we learned a little bit about her history. That was it. Everything was about Bluebird and about about an infiltration of entering the infiltrating the prison to, to try to what to basically rescue this witness. But it wasn't really about punchline. That's the sad part. It was about I I don't care about Bluebird. I don't care about Leslie Tompkins, and I don't care about this witness. I wanted to know something about punchline, and we don't even learn much about punchline even through this witness other than the fact that punchline just wants to kill this witness who isn't killed and then like why do we care about i guess i i don't even i don't even know who the other two characters are the two i don't know i don't know punchlines i don't know bluebird's brother is is wants to have a relationship with the guy at the the member of the royal flush gang why is this relevant why is this important i'm just I'm I'm just not feeling it. I just this was just a an unfocused narrative that that forgot. I think they actually forgot that this was supposed to be a punchline backup. Don't call it a punchline backup if it's a bluebird backup, which is really what this was, because <laughs> this yeah. wasn't a punchline backup. She was she was just sort of like the villain of, of the piece. And in many ways, you could almost say it has something in common in this particular issue with with the Joker itself, because the Joker. Arguably, uh, and this issue was overshadowed by, well, it was overshadowed by Commissioner Gordon. And, you know, Punchline in the backup has been overshadowed by Bluebird. And, uh, you know, in any event, it's a miss for me. Yep, agreed. Uh, okay, up next, the last book we're going to talk about in detail, it's Batman Urban Legends number 10. This is, so, even though we're not talking about uh, Tis the Season to be Freezing, which is a holiday special, this is sort of a pseudo holiday special. We get four stories here, and they're all set during Christmas time. So Tim Drake in A Carol of Bats from Megan Fitzmartin. Alberto Albuquerque Jimenez is the artist. Nick Filardi does colors. Pat Brosso on letters. Tweedledee and Tweedledum and Down the Rabbit Hole, part two of two from writer Sam Johns. Carl Mostert is the artist. David Barron on colors. Tom Napolitano on letters. Azrael and Dark Knight of the Souls, part three of three from Dan Waters. Nicola Semegia is the artist. He's the one that did the black and white art in... Uh, Future State Gotham. So this is what exactly what I was talking about, where his art looks much better colored. Uh, and it's colored by Yvonne Placencia in this particular story with Ariana Mare on. And then the last story is Nightwing in Bats of Christmas Past. Tinny Howard is the writer. Christian Ducey is the artist. Sarah Stern on colors and Becca Carey on letters. Um, the first story was okay. It felt a little forced with Tim Drake trying to make Bruce Wayne happy. Like, have you met Bruce Wayne, Tim Drake? So that, that's why it felt sort of forced. But, you know, I always give Megan Fitzmartin a lot of credit. She, she's she been written a lot of Tim Drake stories lately. She clearly loves the character. So sending Tim Drake out to talk to Nightwing about how to make Bruce Wayne happy. And in the end, they, Tim Drake accepts the fact that you're not ever going to make Bruce Wayne happy. Uh, you just do the best you can. So... It, it was okay. I don't think it quite um, reached the level of a feel-good story that she was hoping that it would. Uh, but we did get a little blurb. Uh, Tim Drake and a Carol of Bats, all the credits, and then and Happy New Year, especially from all the Tim Drake <laughs> fans who will see him more in 2022. Uh, the second story 
again, part two, Tweedledee, Tweedledum from Sam Johns, very much a commentary on how horrible the healthcare system is in uh, the United States with Tweedledee basically having to agree to let Batman send Tweedledum to Bell Rev prison where they'll become part of the suicide squad so that um, Tweedledee can be healed basically from uh, the Mad Hatter mind control that has uh, affected his brain and caused brain damage from him being um, exposed to it for, for so long. So the, the, as much as it's over the top commentary on our healthcare system, which I do appreciate because I think our health healthcare system is just as jacked as the next average American. Uh, the real highlight for that story is the Carl Mostert art. Um, Asriel Dark Knight of the Soul finale. It's okay. You know, uh, based on the end of the story, we're going to see a lot more of Asriel in the next year. Also, it says Asriel's journey continues in the pages of Arkham City. And in 2022, it's his 30th anniversary. So I fully expect there to be at least an uh, Asriel miniseries at, at some point. Um, but yeah, again, Nicola's art looks much better when it's colored. Um, I We're getting the 30th anniversary of Asriel. It's time to sort of evolve the character and move him beyond this tied to religion zealotness that he has it's old it's tired it's boring it's not interesting um he's visually a very interesting character and i wish they'd sort of leave the religious crap in the back but i uh in the past but i sort of feel like nobody knows what to do with him there's other ways to make him interesting than than the religious stuff so i i don't know this was a forgettable story at the end of the day all about his ties to religion and his zealousness. So um, the last story, by far the best of the three uh, from Tinny Howard. It's basically a Nightwing story where Nightwing plays the role of Ebenezer Scrooge from um, A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. So that one was a lot of fun. And I thought the Christian Ducey art service the story very, very well. Um, so to me, that was the most Christmassy of all the, the Christmas stories here. And I don't think I need to go into many details. We all know the story of, of Christmas, uh, the Christmas Carol rather. And, uh, and yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun <laughs> and it, it felt like a really long story too, uh, which I appreciated, but having, um, what Stephanie Brown as, as one of the spirits, um, <laughs> I could have probably done without i thought cassandra kane was an inspired choice for the the ghost of christmas future and how it's so uh hmm. sort of uh, despondent's not the word but uh not i don't know it's so dreary you know like the the future in a christmas carol it, it's so it's so bleak right so i thought cassandra kane and kind of the edge that she has was the, the perfect choice um I did think that it was interesting to have Damien as the choice for Christmas past. Um, I, I guess maybe because it ties into when Dick Grayson was Batman and Damien was his Robin. So I, I, I guess that's why they chose that, but I don't know to me, Damien would have, he's got that edge too. So he would have been more like the bleakness of, of the future. Um, would have thought somebody a little more upbeat, like, Tim Drake or um, 
maybe Barbara Gordon. I don't know. But anyway, it, it was my favorite of the four. I thought it was it was really solid and, and a lot of fun. So uh, what would you think of these uh, four stories, Rocky? Uh, well, I, I like the uh, – I, I actually – I found myself, oddly enough, I actually found myself uh, more intrigued with down the rabbit hole is my favorite story with Tweedledee and Tweedledum. Because I, the funny thing is about that is that I know I criticized that story in the last Batman Urban Legends, but I actually kind of uh, I I liked I liked Tweedledee and Tweedledum, and I I liked the way it kind of resolved itself with uh, Batman and uh, and and getting Tweedledee and Tweedledum. I mean, it was kind of predictable. Like I we, we predicted last issue, we said yeah, Batman's going to show up and get him the treatment and. Now, if I had one criticism of it, though, it seemed to me to be a little bit absurd. I mean, the, the reasoning that Batman gave was he's going to send Tweedledum into they're, they're going to have to. Batman basically told him, well, even though you're innocent, even though you're, you didn't really do anything wrong, if you plead guilty, you'll have to plead guilty. You're going to have either you, you wait six weeks and your brother will die or you plead guilty and you both got to go to prison for the rest of your life in a Bell Reve, Bell Rev prison. That's run by Amanda Waller. I mean, it seemed the reasoning that Batman gave, you know, you know, as if as if there was no other way to save, uh, you know, Tweedledum's life. I just thought, come on, like you're Batman, you, you'd find a way. But in any event, I f- it felt really forced just to get Tweedledee and Tweedledum into Bell Rev, which is cool because hey, I I think I I actually would love to see Tweedledee and Tweedledum be members of the suicide squad. I think, I think that would be kind of funny. <laughs> so I'm kind of glad that that's how it ended up there. I find it interesting that Mad Hatter said something interesting at the end of it. He's got a surprise up his sleeve at the bottom of that rabbit hole. So I have a feeling that, uh, he's got, he's there, that Mad Hatter's got something up his sleeve, maybe in the mind of Tweedledee, uh, that he's going to, he's going to play a role in suicide squad at some point in the future. So, I like what writer Sam Johns did there. Um, the um, yeah, could they show up in uh, War for Earth three? Yeah, they could. Yeah, actually, yeah. You, you never know; they might very well do that. Um, I, I'm actually uh, the the Nightwing story uh, written by Teeny Howard. Actually, before I talk about that, I want to talk about uh, the uh, Azrael story written by Dan Waters, Dark Knight of the Soul. You note that you know what we talked about. Uh, bear in mind who the artist is. Nicola says Mazita. It's the same artist that did uh, got Future State Gotham. Yeah, and black except and white. except it's colored. Yeah, and it's so much and, better. And it's way better. It's it's his his art. I think this does his art better justice because it's actually uh, as a credit to uh, uh, Nicola's Casamita's uh, art or whatever. Uh, the uh, Placencia's colors. Do it just a bang up job of making it look really good, and it's right. It, you know, it's you. You get it. You feel like you're in that time of the Templar Knights, and you, we meet a new character, uh, a new character called uh, the Poor Fellow, who's basically an ancestor of the Templar Knights, whose role and mission it is to destroy the Lazarus Pits, which I think is kind of interesting. I mean, there's been a, there's been a, apparently there's been a. a descendants of Templar Knights whose sole mission is to destroy the Lazarus pits. <laughs> and, and I kind of like that because we, we, as we know, uh, there's Lazarus resin, Lazarus pills, Lazarus, every Lazarus pits is pretty much everywhere. So I like the idea of this poor fellow 
whose sole purpose it is is to destroy the Lazarus pits because you know that this this character has his has her work cut out for her. So I, I kind of like that in terms of what that might m- mean moving forward. And um, the Tim Drake story, uh, a, a Carol of, of of bats. I thought it was Batman hugging Batman having. I didn't buy it. I'm sorry. I just don't see Batman hugging uh, an average citizen in the streets of Gotham after Fear State. Given, given the you know, given the the, the guy who's leading the mob, Batman's gonna walk to, up to him and give him a hug. I I didn't buy it, but Megan Fitzpatrick, you know, she it's a feel good story. I get it. Um, <laughs> uh, for those who love Bernard, Tim, Tim and Bernard, you know, Bernard's very understanding. So, uh, Batman now officially knows that Tim is, um, I guess bisexual and that he has a relationship with Bernard and Batman's happy for him and Batman's happy and he feels good. And even though he never shaved, Batman still feels good and Batman's touchy feely in this issue and he hugs, a, you know, so it's all nice and everything. It's a nice touchy feely, uh, all around, but um, it's not, um, Batman calls Tim Drake his son. I am happy because you're my son. He actually said that. This is a very different Batman, I, I guess. But, you know, this is, you know, you don't see the bat. The Batman of the 70s never said this. This is not your Frank Miller's Batman, Batman by any stretch. But it, it's definitely a, a, a down-to-earth, more uh, Batman in tune with his feelings uh, in these stories. But, uh, yeah. I I'm actually pleased with Teeny Howard's Nightwing story with the Ghost of Christmas Past present. Uh, Teeny Howard is going to be writing the new writer on Catwoman, so I'm I'm really hoping that she's gonna. I'm I'm pleased with her writing on Nightwing. Hopefully, she'll uh, display the same sense of familiarity with the character of Selina Kyle as she did with uh, Dick Grayson. Yeah, I agree, hundred percent. Uh, okay, well, that does it for all the books that we're going to talk about in detail, everybody. There are a few other um, regular issues. Like I said, the Tis the Season to be Freezing, number one, we'll be doing a spotlight on for the 12 Days of the Comic Source. There's also uh, Batman and Scooby-Doo Mysteries, number nine, that came out this week. There's Holly, Harley Quinn, the animated series, the Eat, Bang, Kill Tour, number four. Uh, also, Batman, The Adventures Continue, Season 2. That's up to number 7. And then as far as collected editions, there's a, a couple of hardcovers. We have Nightwing Volume 1, Leaping into the Light. That's the uh, Tom Taylor, Bruno Redondo uh, Volume 1. That hardcover is out, as well as the Strange Adventures hardcover from writer Tom King, with art by Mitch Gerrards and Evan Doc Shaner. Also, the Rorschach hardcover, also written by Tom King, with uh, incredible art by Jorge Fornes. There's also the Harley Quinn Volume 1 No Good Deed uh, hardcover from uh, Stephanie Phillips with art by Riley Rosmo. And then uh, in softcover, trade paperback, Wonder Woman Volume 1, Afterworld's trade paperback we were just talking about from uh, the the writers, uh, Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad. So a lot of Tom King. uh, Definitely recommend the hardcover of, uh, of Nightwing. Strange Adventures was amazing. Rorschach was amazing. And speaking of Tom King, he'll be on the show soon. Uh, for the 12 days in the comic source he always likes to come on during the holiday season and he's got some crater owned books coming up we're going to talk about strange adventures we're going to talk about rorschach so and uh, supergirl ask him about supergirl and and we'll talk about supergirl Supergirl. you know that's coming (laughs) out uh, as well and he's got a new project with uh his longtime collaborator uh mitch garrods which obviously he won't be able to tell us anything about whatsoever 
uh, <laughs> but I'll bring it up anyway. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. Um, also, don't forget we have twelve days of Smonmus, right. uh, where we're gonna Rocky's gonna join me for at least some of the episodes. We're gonna cover Woo-hoo. the first twelve issues of Spawn, heading into a project for the new year. Uh, and the last thing that we want to mention as we're closing out here is the uh, incredibly bittersweet news from George Perez, who announced last week on social media that he has cancer that's inoperable and he has anywhere from six months to a year to live, according to what the doctors are telling him. Um, Maybe he could prolong that with cancer treatment, but based on his experience with other people who've dealt with pancreatic cancer, um, he's chosen not to, uh, you know, take that treatment because it's going to affect his quality of life. And, he doesn't want to spend those last six months to a year going to doctor's appointments and feeling sick from the chemo and the radiation and whatnot. So, you know, more power to him. Um, the reason it's bittersweet, obviously, is because we're losing a living legend. Uh, you cannot overstate the impact this man has had on comics. But even beyond that, um, I've had the pleasure of meeting George several times and forget about his talent as a comic book artist or as a comic creator or storyteller. He is one of the kindest human beings I've ever met in my entire life. Humble, grateful for his career and his fans. It's just absolutely incredible. The world will be a poorer place for not having George Perez in it, regardless of his, his work in comics or his art. He is just an incredible human being. He's a bright shining light. I've never talked to him and not walked away without a big smile on my face. Uh, he's just such a nice person. And so um, the positive is that, that we know George chose to share this with all of us, all, all comic fans and, and all of his fans. So we have time to tell him how much we appreciate how he shared his art with us, how much we appreciate who he is as a person. So, there's a link in the show notes where you can go and uh, he established a new Facebook page where you can go and leave comments. I encourage everybody to go and, and thank him and tell him what his artwork has meant to you uh, over the years. And uh, there's there's a chance we'll have him on the show. I mean, obviously, he's getting a lot of requests for, uh, for interviews and whatnot, and we want him to spend these last uh, – these last months and, and hopefully a year of his time with his, his family and his loved ones. So we certainly don't want to, uh, you know, encroach on that, but, but if possible, if he's open to coming on the show and, and talking about his career and whatnot, we'll, we'll certainly let you know if we can, if we can make that happen. So, um, I mean, for me, I yeah. probably first learned his name. I, I'm sure I'd seen his art previous, but when I really knew his name, and realized what an incredible artist he was, was Crisis on Infinite Earths, um, where I was just draw, jaw on the floor with what this guy could do uh, with with emotion, with character acting, and with tons and tons and tons of characters. Uh, and then, you know, later in life, getting a chance to meet him. Um, yeah, it literally took my breath away when I saw the, the message that he shared. Um, it's just not something you would ever wish uh, for anybody and, and, you know, certainly not him. Um, so yeah. again, bittersweet link in the show notes, go check out the Facebook page, leave a, leave a note. Um, 
like I said, he, he, he reads, he might not necessarily respond to all of the, the, uh, comments left there, but he is reading all of them. So, uh, anything to add Rocky? Uh, well, uh, George Perez to me was, uh, having started collecting comics in around 1976. Uh, he was, uh, I, I now know that the artist that I first became familiar with was primarily Kurt Swan, but I got to admit that the first superstar artist was George Perez with uh, new teen Titans. Uh, He, 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 my first, my first introduction to a superstar artist. I mean, George Perez was the guy who you wanted every comic book you bought to be drawn by George Perez. That's what I wanted. I mean, that was just, that was just it. I mean, he was that good an artist and, uh, he was just, you know, uh, he was amazing and he was, he was absolutely amazing. And to this day, to this day, nobody, nobody can draw so many people to match like in one scene, his JLA versus Avengers his spread that many cram that many characters. Kurt Busiek would tell stories about the JLA versus Avengers, where he he said, "Well, I I want to have like thirty or forty characters," and George Perez would like he'd draw like an extra fifteen. I mean, he always exceeded expectations. He blew people away. He was unbelievable. Uh, so much to say. I'm going to be doing my own uh, retrospective on him. And and also, let me just say the one thing. And I I, know, <laughs> I think I said this to you before too. Is that you know. You know this man's still around. He's awesome. He's gonna. I mean, he's gonna. He's gonna go out flying high. He he wants to go out meeting his fans. He wants to go out hugging people, uh, sharing his love, uh, giving the love back to us that we've shown him over the years, over the decades. The guy's a legend, and yeah, uh, stand up guy. And I, you know, we're gonna. I, I intend to love the shit and appreciate his work and reread it. I got. I got my omnibus. I got. I got my absolute edition of Crisis. I mean, that that's that thing. That thing's beautiful. I've got, you know, I got my I've got my new Teen Titans. I've got I got so much George Perez uh, that I can appreciate. And uh, yeah, it's uh, tragic news. But man, the, the guy's a legend. Yeah, no doubt. And I and that's the thing when you talk about George Perez. I mean, he his his art was around for so long, right? Like from the time I started reading comics and, and without realizing it, like I, there's so many issues of Avengers, like in the low two hundreds that he drew that I, I read and really enjoyed and didn't realize till years later. Why did I enjoy those issues so much? Oh, because George Perez was the art. Cause again, I didn't really know his style and, and put the style to the name until crisis on infinite earth. Um, but you're right. I mean, I don't think that his level of ability when it comes to drawing giant scenes with tons of characters will ever be equaled. Um, Not with the way people draw these days, you know, like that's the thing. Like he came up at a time where you were the artist on a book and you did that book every month and you did not take time off. You know, now it's, it's news when an artist does 10 of the 12 issues for a year, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and they are, and, and part of it is the fact that they do put more detail in the art now than they used to. But Perez was doing that back then he was putting that, he was the one guy that was putting that level of detail in back then, you know, like when you, when you look at just 
tons and tons of characters and, and drawing like every strand of hair, Starfire's hair, you know, <laughs> in those Teen Titans issues where it would just flow out into her, you know, kind of thrust from her, her flight. Like, yeah, you, you can't say enough good things about his, his talent. Um, and then, like I said, even beyond that, just what an incredibly stand-up guy. So, so yeah, hope, hope we'll be doing a spotlight. Rocky and I will probably do a spotlight together talking about Perez and, uh, and hopefully, like I said, we'll, we'll have him on. Um, cause yeah, the guy's a legend. So, uh, anyway, like I said, be sure to pay attention. Be sure you're following us on social media, 12 days of the comic source coming up. We talk about plenty of spawn, have plenty of interviews, some giveaways and whatnot. Uh, and, uh, tis the season to be freezing spotlight, just ton- tons of fun stuff we do leading up to Christmas. I know a lot of you guys are out of school. You're off work. You need more content and we're here to give it to you. So, uh, don't forget if you're checking us out on YouTube, be sure not to miss out on any of the other comic source episodes. Go to your favorite podcasting platform or podcasting app and do a search for the comic source and give us a subscription. Uh, conversely, if you're checking us out on audio only, be sure you head over to YouTube, do a search for Rocky's channel. It's comic space boom exclamation point. Like this video, ring that notification bell so you know when he puts out uh, content and be sure you subscribe so you don't miss anything. Uh, and as always, we want to wish you uh, happy holidays this time of year. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. I'm not sure what the Kwanzaa term is. Uh, crazy Kwanzaa. Have a crazy Kwanzaa. I don't know. <laughs> uh, whatever you celebrate, we, I hope it's a joyous time. And uh, wishing everybody a prosperous new year. Uh, there you go. Look at that. Rocky's got the <laughs> happy holidays <laughs> ready to go. So uh, we really appreciate the support, uh, especially this time of year, you know, spending time with friends and family and it's coming up on the, on the, you know, year in review and just thinking back on the year and all the support and, and the great download numbers and you guys t- tuning in to the DC spotlights every week. We really, really appreciate it. We do. So uh, anything else you want to add Rocky as we finish up here? Uh, no, just, uh, I ho- hope everyone gets, uh, don't forget to get your Christmas shopping done. Uh, happy shopping and uh, try to get out and support, uh, you know, try to get out to a theater and support, support the box office so I, I, I know i want to do that and uh enough with all this streaming stuff we got to get back and watch some movies for the christmas season yeah i'm i'm traveling i'm driving all the way from phoenix to vegas to see <laughs> the new matrix movie on the day it comes out so i can see it with my son like we're gonna see it like together oh that's uh, awesome then, yeah so i'm driving all the way there just to watch the movie and then him and i are going to turn around and drive back together uh, for christmas so uh anyway everybody that's going to do it for this episode Uh, We really appreciate the support as always, and we'll talk to you next time. See you later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.